Good morning, good day, good evening, wherever you are. This is the fourth session of the grand jury investigation with a real judge, real lawyers, real wit expert witnesses, and real witnesses outside of the system. Um, the last session dealt with uh, the PCR test and alternative methods of treatment. Uh, we will have a brief summary given to us by Judge Rui in a minute, but uh, this is just to inform you that last time we learned that there is no real pandemic, only a PCR test pandemic, and that the virus, which is out there, can be dealt with with regular methods of treatment. Before we go in Redias Mes, Emirias Res, uh, we will show you two videos just to remind us with what this is about. The first one shows one of the chief proponents of the so-called vaccines, Bill Gates, explaining how ultimately natural immunity is better than vaccine-induced immunity, and another video that shows a victim of these shots. To kick off, actually, and get a bit of a scene center from Mr. Gates, because this is, I know, a topic that you've spoken on again and again. You were ahead of the curve prior to the beginning of this pandemic. Where would you assess where we are today in beating COVID-19? Well, the, uh, you know, sadly, the virus itself, particularly the, the variant called Omicron, uh, is a type of vaccine. That is, it creates both B cell and T cell immunity. And it's done a better job of getting out to the world population uh, than we have with vaccines. If you do uh, sero surveys in African countries, you get well over 80% of people uh, have been exposed either to the vaccine or uh, to various variants. And so, you know, what that does is it means the chance of severe disease, which is mainly associated with being elderly and uh, having obesity or diabetes, those risks are now dramatically reduced because of that uh, infection exposure. And you know, it's sad. We didn't do a great job on therapeutics. You know, only here, two years in, do we have a, a good therapeutic. Uh, vaccines, it took us two years to be in oversupply. Today, there are more vaccines than there's demand for vaccines. Uh, and, you know, that wasn't true. And next time we should try and make it, instead of two years, we should make it more like six months, uh, which certainly... Uh, you know, some of the standardized platform approaches, including mRNA, would allow us to do that. So, you know, it, it took us a lot longer this time than, than it should have. To kick off, actually... I just taken my first dose of the vaccine on the 1st of December 2021. <laughs>
I taken the Pfizer vaccine and I was in fit, fit, very fit health and condition. All of that changed the instant I took the vaccine. When I started this new employment on the 23rd of November, they instructed me and requested my green card to prove that I've been vaccinated. The only reason I took the vaccine was because of work. No other medical checkup was done prior to taking the vaccine. My left arm has been put totally out of use. From the, from the day that I've taken the vaccine, the very same night, I couldn't sleep. And um, it, pro it proceeded to the next night as well. I put up with the pain and the agony for the two nights. But like on the third night, I noticed that it was deteriorating. The bubble started here. Initially, they started here. And then you could see they were developing. During that time frame, my hand was deteriorating and I could not use it at all. I couldn't bath. I couldn't look after, care for myself and groom myself. So I went to my private doctor. Upon examining me, he, when he looked at my hand, it was in a very, very bad situation. It ran all the way down to my pointer finger. And he, he, by sight only, he, he diagnosed that it was shingles. He gave me something to help me sleep at night and a few pain meds. He also prescribed to me um, an antibiotic. Also blood clots forming on my, on my fingers and on my palm. Because there's every two hours, there's like a sharp pain that just hits my entire arm. And it's like, as if, it's like a burning, it's as if when you get burnt. And I had to constantly run my arm under cold water to eradicate that pain. I don't sleep at night. My arm is riddled with pain. I'm constantly waking the family up. Even though the, the blisters have healed out, there's still pain of nerve running through my arm all the time. I've been not working since the 1st of December due to me not being there for such a long period. I am so afraid. I will never take another vaccine. I'd rather, I'd rather say, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather die or I'd rather get the COVID. Maybe I'll survive. But this unbearable pain and this disfigurement of my arm because I'm somebody that dresses very well and I'm very fashionable. Now with the scars that's gonna riddle my body, I don't think I'll be the same person again. I hope this opens up people's minds and their intelligence and I hope they do the right things for the benefit of their health. Now that we've heard from the famous medical expert Bill Gates and one of his victims, um, we will very quickly hear from the real medical experts. But before that, uh, Judge Rui de Castro will summarize the last session. It's a mute. You must unmute yourself, Judge Rui. I'm sorry. Good evening, everybody. Summary of day three of the grand jury investigation of the Court of Public Opinion. February 2022. Dr. Astrid Stuckelberger explained how the PCR test was introduced in 2020 as a diagnostic tool, which had never happened before. Also, normally in pandemics, there is a patient zero, but there wasn't a patient zero in this so-called pandemic. Explained also that all attempts in the past for a coronavirus vaccine have failed because it mutates all the time. 
mention the conflict of interest involving Drosten since there were three payments from Gavi to the La Charité between 2018 and 2020. Stated that Drosten must have known PCR tests he designed would produce a massive amount of false positives, so he should have known. He knew. Dr. Ulrich Kammerer explained how the PCR test works and why it is technically it is and why it is technically not able to decide if a sample which is found positive is it indicative of an infectious contagious person even if performed under perfect conditions can't be used as a gold standard and basis for non-medical actions intended to stop the spread of a virus since all the active material is destroyed in the process in the process of the pcr the first uh, WHO protocol uh, from Christian Dorsen, Drosten is technically very poor, explained how PCR tests with the Drosten protocol started to be, misused, to be misused as a diagnostic tool and also how a bad PCR test design can lead to a massive number of false, of false positives. Stated that is first time in history that the molecular genetic test is used, is used as a diagnostic tool, agreeing that the goal must have been to create false cases in order to fake a pandemic. Sonia Pekova explained that the difference between the difference in genetic sequences between different waves during 2020, concluding that there were different viruses causing them. That would explain why the Drosten PCR test aimed since the beginning to three targets in order not to miss anything, so it would produce the required number of cases for uh, a required pandemic that he wanted. Explain it furthermore that if you have a virus that is changing so much, it's not possible to use one single vaccine that was designed to, to, against the original virus, which does not circulate anymore which could lead to antibody-dependent enhancements. Dr. Brian Ardis explained how so many people were dying in the early 2020, which is related to the use of remdesivir, leading to a massive acute kidney failure, liver failure, and heart failure. John Onlune, funeral director, uh, said that there was uh, in uh, in UK there was no increase of the deaths right in, in, into 2020. Only after the started the starting of the massive vaccination, the death rate increasedly uh, dram increased dramatically. When it was clear that many young people were dying from thrombosis, Dr. Shankar Shetty said that found very suspicious that the new so-called virus spread from Wuhan to the rest of the world, but not to the rest of China. Found weird that PCR tests started to be used as a diagnostic tool, and that uh, the health authorities were saying asymptomatic people were able to infect others. Explained his, med his medical practice in South, in South Africa during 2020, treating patients uh, that were showing an uncommon kind of pneumonia using hydrox hydroxychloroquine, which is used for a long time and has antiviral effects. This is a summary of day three. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now let's hear from the real medical experts. 
What is it about the vaccine? We've, no, we've learned last time that no pandemic exists uh, and that the virus can be treated uh, by a traditional methods of treatment effectively and safely. What is the truth? So, I, uh, if I can share my screen. Hello, uh, everyone. Uh, I, my name is Alexandra Henry Code, and uh, sorry, I, I I will share my screen. Can you see it correctly? Yes. Okay. Yes. So I, uh, Dr. Alexandra Hernion-Kud, uh, Director of Research in Genetics uh, and Director of Simplicima Research Institute, declare no conflict of interest. Uh, um, I, it seems that we uh, do face an unprecedented problem. And I want to stress to start with to give more relief to the testimony you just uh, showed, uh, Reiner. Uh, that we have uh, in the present database three over three million adverse reactions that have been notified in the database of VG access by the World Health Organization. This is unprecedented because if we gather all the death, for instance, uh, of that uh, took place only after COVID-19 vaccination, in comparison to uh, all the over the 30 years of any other vaccines, they already account for over half of the death over 30 years. So basically within one year of those COVID vaccination, we've already reached over half of the death. The, um, the, uh, the problem is actual because no matter how the way we look at the data, talking with uh, our world in data, we have an increase of the weekly confirmed COVID-19 death per million people that keeps on increasing, specifically all the more in the countries that do vaccinate at a high rate and more so than in countries where the, the, the rate is, uh, is not, is difficult to uh, assess basically because it's India and Africa, but the trend of the curve is just so obvious that we can only say that the vaccination is not the solution. I want to stress that the problem is not an anti-vax or a pro-vax problem as it has been constantly presented to the people. The problem is to openly discuss our scientific knowledge and the gaps of this knowledge. And typically, we need to accept that RNA viruses undergo relatively rapid mutation, which can critically impact vaccination strategies. To take an example, I will take the ancestral Wuhan SARS-CoV-2 variant that is likely extinct. That is to say that we haven't seen it in Europe or in any other countries. And this Wuhan variant was happened to be extinct without a vaccine. So for the last two years, 
a sole answer to COVID-19 has been repeatedly offered to us, which was presented as the vaccine. Yet, we have at least five issues with this presentation of the sole solution to COVID-19. One is that these vaccines were are unwary and unethical products. We all know, I hope, that they are still at the R&D stage, research and development. They are on those products were still in the research and development stage and therefore are still under clinical trial status. The second aspect is that they were presented as the sole solution with false and changing promises, mainly due to the fact that, again, there was this ongoing status of the clinical trial that would end in 2023. The third aspect is that they could be imposed to the world because they excluded any other treatment. Basically, we have this conditional existence of this emergency authorization that solely depends on the lack of any alternative treatment. So one can only understand why no other treatment were presented. The fourth aspect is that there was no assessment of the epidemic dynamics in terms of the decision of uh, going further to vaccinate massively. And this is also something very important, as well as a defectuous pharmacovigilance because the, the issue was so big. And the last but not least aspect, the fifth one, is that there was a flawed risk-benefit analysis that would not take account the age, nor the disease status, nor the status of immunity, whether natural or even the waning one now, as well as the adverse reaction. With these five uh, items of the background, we understand how these COVID-19 were imposed to us as the unique solution. I will go reverse. So instead of going one, two, three, four, five, I will quickly browse five, five the fifth point, this flawed risk-benefit analysis, but we'll go for, uh, later on in detail uh, because those are concerned the future. The, the fourth point is the fact that there was no assessment of the epidemic dynamics. And this is important because normally when you do vaccinate a population, you try not to be in a replicative stage of uh, the, 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 the virus that will go beyond uh, a certain threshold. And you don't want to be in the dynamic that it's, there is an increase. In Israel, the, the black line here was the start of the uh, vaccination campaign. And therefore, uh, and, and after that, you got the strongest peak of death, COVID-19 death of the Israeli population. The same happened in UK, where it was actually more in the, the, the lower part of the dynamics of the epidemics. But yet, again, it was followed, the start of the campaign was followed by the highest peak of COVID-19 death. Same with Emirates. 
And with those three um, uh, countries that were that took place quite early because they were the, the sooner uh, the soonest uh, to vaccine mass, vaccine massively their population, they should have had a halt. The exclusion of any other treatment, we have loads of studies that do show other treatments, yet those were excluded just for the, the, the sake of saying that there was no other solution. These false and changing promises are important. The failed promises, uh, the, those are typically the fact that those products were presented to us as a mean to end a pandemic. Instead of ending a pandemic, we can read uh, like in, in on the World Economic Forum, on the conversation in September 2021, that COVID-19 was likely shifting from pandemic to endemic. So this is a failed promise of the virus. The other promise was that it would be a weapon to eradicate a virus. Now in Bloomberg last month in January, you, we could, one could read that Europe was slowly starting to consider treating COVID like the flu, meaning to take medication and not suddenly uh, rely on vaccination. So it was a failed promise. Another failed promise was it was a drug to protect from the disease. But we all know, and Bloomberg again published it, uh, I think it was yesterday, that new COVID variants obviously did complicate the question of vaccine mandates because these variants cannot ensure the fact that those drugs will protect from the diseases. The other part that is important in these fall and changing promises is that at no stage was the immune status taking, taken into account. And this is a big issue. Uh, there is this very nice paper taking over 52,000 employees uh, in the health, um, health employees that clearly shows that whether you have been previously infected or whether you have been vaccinated, you have a substantial protection against the COVID-19 and that vaccination of previously infected individuals does not provide additional protect, protection against COVID, meaning that all these uh, pass, uh, uh, passport um, imposed on the people on uh, not taking care of their immune status are wrong. The first uh, to stand to end up with the first point, which was the unwary uh, aspect of those products, one should know that there was sufficient data in the literature to have all the warnings to understand that any anti-coronavirus vaccines were never successful. No anti-coronavirus vaccines were ever approved in France, whether in animals or in human. And this had led to uh, scientists to publish this very nice uh, paper early on, stating that independently whether you would fight against SARS, against MERS with vaccine candidates, 
you had a phenomenon with antibodies that were associated with a high inflammatory morbidity in all the preclinical models and therefore obstructing their advancements to the clinic. So they bypassed this knowledge. They also bypassed the fact that this phenomenon was consistent across any sort of vaccines used. It was not a question of the strategy, whether a mRNA or a DNA or what kind of vector, but it was irrespectively of the type of vaccine an issue. And therefore, they were asking that if we were to vaccinate anyone, we would disclose to them the specific risk of worsening COVID-19 disease from the vaccination. The other part is that there were known warnings for the mRNA vaccine as well. As such, a little bit like the, the anti-coronavirus vaccine, no mRNA vaccines were ever approved worldwide for any disease in humans. And this, uh, you see it very well in the literature, through reviews. Basically, uh, when you unravel all the clinical trials in the past, except with the exception of COVID, they did not reach beyond phase two. The last issue that I want to stress with these unwary products is the fact that choosing spike in the design of all these vaccines, because no vaccine does not target spikes specifically, were a big mistake for three reasons. One is that spike is known as a hotspot for evolutionary, uh, for, for mutation. All these little triangles that you get means that you have intense mutation in the spike. So now if you build up antibody against a region that keeps on changing and mutating, obviously you know in advance that your product may be very well outdated. The second part, spike is a hotspot for glycosylation. It is a little sugar that is added to the spike protein in red that you see, this is the virus in red, the spike, and this glycosylation are the sugar meaning that the, patent, the patterns of uh, those sugar on the spike keep on changing. And this, again, will clearly uh, uh, make any sort of vaccination more than tricky. And the last part, but not the least, is the fact that they chose a pathogenic antigen that they did not, did not try to attenuate or to inactivate, which is normally the case in vaccination. That is to say that the, 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 the toxicity of this spike was remained. So the, 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 the last uh, part is the fact that we know now that there will be repeated boosting, uh, repeated injection. And this is, again, from our past knowledge, a critical issue because systemic autoimmunity appears to be inevitable, an inevitable consequence of overstimulating your host immune system. To that, I will uh, pass it uh, on to Vanessa and Sukarit, I believe. Uh, I want to stress the fact that we 
face an unprecedented worldwide situation harming a few people, uh, at least uh, three millions already, potentially engendering all of them, meaning billions of people, and likely future generations with a lack of demonstrated benefit as compared typically to vitamin D, for instance, because they could have compared uh, the, their, their, their strategy. So it is, I believe, our responsibility to stop at once this never-ending campaign as the fourth dose has already been announced in Israel. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alexandra. One question I have. You said no mRNA vaccine has ever been approved for humans. Um, is it correct that mRNA technique has only been used in cancer research and been used on patients who literally had nothing to lose, not on healthy patients? The cancer and infectious disease, uh, that were the, the different trials, uh, clinical trials ongoing. Mm -hmm. And could you quickly say what, um, what the second, uh, the second uh, step of the, the trials is? Because you, phase two, what does that mean for the audience who doesn't know like, which that, what that means? So it means that the, um, you, you have a number of um, uh, of um, critical uh, steps that you need to um, to reach in order to ensure a safety uh, that you can move forward to into human, and those are like the preclinical issues, uh, the preclinical stages that uh, uh, you normally have, phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four. And because uh, they, they did not, uh, they were not successful, they did not uh, pursue further. So, but phase two means it's a... I, I saw that Vanessa wanted to elaborate, I think. Okay, mm -hmm. good. Any other questions I from... Could, uh, yes. Sorry, Dexter. Yeah. Could I, uh, no problem, uh, Rainer. Could I, Dr. Uh, Arian, quote, um, I just wanted to find out, um, you are a geneticist. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. For how long have you been practicing as a geneticist? <laughs> um, for, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm very bad with time, since uh, 1990, since I graduated uh, my doctorate, so it was in 1997. So 1997, that's definitely quite a number of years. We are talking more than 20 years approximately. Uh, and uh, uh, yes, and over more than that, yes, and over 15 years, uh, 12 to 15 years on RNA biology, on RNA specifically. Okay, so you will then say that you are an expert when it comes to genetics, you know all the ins and outs basically when it comes to genetics? No, that's, uh, that's uh, something uh, very nice in our job is that we never know nothing and that we are always in the process of, uh, of <laughs> acquiring uh, knowledge. So we uh, are supposed to be a specialist, that is to say that we have uh, a good knowledge of, uh, of the, the literature, uh, of a number of things, which is 
the stage at which the knowledge is. So it's never the truth. It's never uh, a, a something that is completely established. It is always evolving. Okay. So when it comes to this vaccines, and, uh, it is public knowledge. It is public knowledge that when it comes to the COVID-19 vaccines, we are talking about, and we have presented evidence, we are talking about, about the mRNA vaccines, which is then genetics, or it is a, a genetic a way of introducing new uh, cells uh, to uh, the human body. Is that correct, uh, doctor? Again, I didn't understand your point. It is a common knowledge that the COVID-19 vaccines, and you have given evidence that it is mRNA vaccines, which means it is a gene therapy. So it is then uh, certain uh, cells that is injected into the human cell, the human DNA. Is it correct if I say that? Um, I, I, I still didn't get your point. So it is correct to say that um, that a, it is an ad, um, advanced medicinal product using based on gene. Some call it gene therapy. Uh, even uh, the FDA, I, I believe, has called it gene therapy. I am not comfortable with the fact it is a gene therapy because therapy means that you are being cured of something. When here in the current, uh, the current case, it has been injected in people who did not need to be cured, who did not mean to get uh, treated. So that's why I'm not comfortable with this uh, gene therapy. What it is, is that indeed you, uh, by injecting those, uh, uh, mRNA in the cell, what one cannot say that you do not reach a sta sta status of modific uh, gene modification because by this sole fact that this gene, viral gene, goes into the cells and, uh, and to the best of our knowledge, we don't know yet when it is, it gets degraded. But I think Vanessa again will elaborate on that. So, that, is that you are modified without, we, we don't know at which stage you cease being modified. If Could I ever, make a comment? Yeah. Could, may I make a comment, uh, Dexter? You can briefly make a comment. Uh, yes. Uh, what Alexander was saying uh, is actually that you are not injecting the body with cells. You are injecting the body with a viral gene and the gene gets into your cells. So it's a big difference. Uh, but um, otherwise, whether, whether you want to call this gene therapy or not is a matter of semantics. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much for clarifying it. Uh, doctor, just before you go, um, you have actually also... Given no, no, I, 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 I'm saying so, you, you, and I think you will get to know much more now. <laughs> okay, just, yeah, so... Uh, you have given evidence and uh, your evidence, and for me, I actually regard it as very crucial evidence. Um, and you have stated that uh, no assessment of the epidemic dynamics has been done. According oh. to you, how crucial is it for that to have been done? And um, yeah, so, so let me rather just, uh, just stick with it. How important is it? 
special enough as to be in any books of any medical student, student in medicine. That is to say, it's the, mo it's the basics that you get to learn. You do not want to uh, vaccinate someone when there is a chance he or she is sick or getting the disease. So you don't want to, to take the chance. Okay. So my last question to you, doctor, is that, and I believe that you are aware when it comes to uh, the four basic ethical bioethics code of medicine, uh, and I am going to mention it to you briefly. Uh, the first uh, principle, that's the four main principle of ethical principles, that is uh, beneficence, and then we have now now uh, non-malfeasance, autonomy, and justice. Now, having regard to the evidence that you have presented, will you say that any doctor who presents or actually injects any citizen in the world with this mRNA vaccine, which has never passed phase two, any of those doctors, are they in a breach concerning that four main ethical principles that I've mentioned. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quickly just... Beneficence, non-malficence, autonomy, and justice. What is uh, when they... It is their ignorance... <laughs> But when it comes perhaps, to a medical doctor, I, you... Mr. I mean, if you don't mind, perhaps we can add uh, some points to, uh, for, for Professor Arnoncourt about the, number, the Nuremberg Code. It's about uh, enlightened consent, and I think it's very important. If you don't mind, I will confront the scientific uh, conclusions of Professor Arnoncourt with the principles which were determined in 1947. There is a Nuremberg Code of International... Yes, sorry, Dexter, can, can I go on? Yes? Please proceed. proceed. <laughs> Thank you. The Nuremberg Code of International Criminal Jurisprudence presents a list of 10 criteria the first is the following. The voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. This means that the person concerned must have the legal capacity to consent, that he or she must be placed in a position to exercise free power of choice without the intervention of any element of force, fraud, coercion, trickery, deception, or other unendured forms of compulsion or coercion, and that he or she must have sufficient knowledge and understanding of what is involved to enable him or her to make an informed decision. What he said is, consent with its revocability is, is the essential criterion for distinguishing from a criminal perspective between the victim and the subject. Professor, on your code, in your point of view, can we consider that people injected 
with so-called anti-COVID vaccines have given a true and enlightened consent. Following what you said. Yes, I do. You think that they gave, they, they gave a very an enlightened consent to the to the the vaccines, anti-COVID vaccines? No. Do you think so? They, they were not giving an enlightened cons. Uh, they, 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 they were not enlightened, so they could not. So I, I, I think that there is the the due to what I think was their ignorance. They could not. They were not in the capacity of uh, informing the patients. So they are victims because they, they cannot be subject of an, an experimentation if they didn't uh, um, give the, uh, an enlightened consent, a true consent. So, so, so basically um, the, the, the victims are dual. Uh, the victims would be the, the medical doctors, who uh, a number of them who injected without having the knowledge, the knowledge and the other where the victims are the victims themselves because they were not having an informed consent sufficient. Can I quickly come in there? And I think this is very, very important, uh, uh, Doctor, is that we need to make this differentiation because right, you have actually uh, defined two types of victims. The one victim you've defined is the medical doctor who actually inject this experimental mRNA in unsuspected citizens. That is, uh, that is then the first victim that you've said. The second class of victims that you've identified is then ultimately the patient per se. So um, what I want to get to, and that is the first class, um, I am of the view, and you can tell me as to whether you agree with me, is that when it comes to a medical doctor, a medical doctor cannot plead ignorance under any circumstances based on the four ethical basic principles that I've read to you. And that is one of them, whatever uh, they inject or whatever uh, prescription they give, it must be to the benefit of the patient. So a doctor that has not done his or her research in any country of the world Injecting this mRNA, now we've got evidence it has never even passed the phase two. That doctor cannot plead ignorance and he must or she must be out liable. Do you agree with me on that uh, uh, statement that I've made, doctor? Not quite, because, um, um, because as I said in my presentation, I think we were facing an unprecedented situation. That is to say the, the pressure of the, the medical doctors to, 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 to do the job of, of injecting the, 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 the people was so strong that um, I do not see how they, they, they could possibly or where could they possibly look for the information uh, and because the information they were receiving themselves was not sufficient to uh, get their inform uh, their information. So, so um, that's why I, I I really think that we this is a very unprecedented situation. 
may I? Uh, next. Uh, Thank you very much for that, uh, uh, Doctor. When it comes to, uh, I, I'm taking note of you, Professor Bhakti. I'll come to you just now. Um, so you've now clarified basically according to you, and that's basically then your evidence, and then the evidence it is unprecedented. So which means these medical doctors, uh, in a sense, um, it is justified for them to be ignorant, although I will completely disagree with that. Because as a medical doctor, you actually put yourself out there to ensure that you look after the best interest of your patients. And it is your duty, even when it comes to pandemics and epidemics, uh, any kind of uh, illness, to actually do thorough research and then actually consult wherever you need to consult. And this is the problem what we have, because why everything has been top down from the World Health Organization, the ministers and uh, ministries of Yalt in each and every country in lockstep. But um, what I just want in conclusion... I, I, I agree with you, but as I said, when you don't know where to find the information, where this is more critical. <laughs> I understand what you say. Thank you, Doctor. Just and, and, and I just want to put it on record because right, we do have evidence in this grand jury where a South African doctor uh, gave evidence last week, and in his evidence, he explained to us what was the medical analytical process he underwent when he was confronted with uh, this novel coronavirus. So then, in conclusion, seeing that he could have actually done that as a general practitioner, that's actually not from one of the main cities in the country, but he could have done that. So I will say when it comes to a duty of care, the medical doctors, and specifically here, I'm actually making reference to uh, Dr. Fauci. He's supposed to have known, and I'm talking about all the uh, medical uh, experts as well, also uh, medical uh, societies in each and every country, they were supposed to have known, and they cannot plead ignorance. But thank you for your evidence. I really appreciate it. In conclusion, Professor Bhakti, would you like to add anything? Yeah, I, ju I, I, I just want to say that what I presented was a little browsing and the details are upcoming now with uh, the presentation of Sukarit and Vanessa. So it was just meant to be a browse. So I, I took shortcuts into presenting it. I just wanted to say that I would uh, absolutely uh, share your opinion about the responsibility of doctors to get informed, especially uh, when they see that something is going wrong, uh, not perhaps at the very beginning, but after months of these deaths and injuries that we're seeing, no one can plead innocent. The only other detail I wanted to say is that um, this new vaccine has passed the stage four because of the manipulation of the studies. All right. So uh, let's not make a mistake here. A formal mistake. Thank you so much, so, uh, Professor. Yeah, yeah, no, I said, but, but the COVID, I said to the exception. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To the exception of the COVID. Exactly. <laughs> I think Thank we should very much. move Thank on you, now. Thank you, Doctor. Yeah, we can move on. I'm done. Thank you very much. Vanessa, would you like to go ahead? Yes, thank you. So thank you very much for having organized this event. My name is Vanessa Schmidt-Krüger. I am a molecular cell biologist. And I think it is very important that we inform people with real scientific facts that the mainstream media obviously hide or do not know better. 
So with this event, basically, we want to show the public that there are also other opinions about the virus and also about the vaccination than the ones that the vaccination propaganda tells us every day. In my presentation, I will address four main messages. And after that, I will hand over to my wonderful colleagues. So just start with the first message. What you should know is we don't need any vaccination against coronaviruses. So I have uh, um, divided into uh, three points. So point one is not nearly as many people have died from corona as the governments and the media would have us believe. So the first thing what people should know is that SARS-CoV-2 is not a killer virus. This is also shown by the official statistics. It is only the media and the government that make basically a mountain out of a molehill. Now, several countries, including the U.S., uh, Italy, Sweden, have published that in far over 90% of the COVID-19 deaths, the patients suffered from several underlying diseases. These diseases damaged the patient's immune system to such an extent that these patients could no longer fight the virus as health people easily do. We would also like to emphasize here that the average age of death in connection with COVID-19 is higher than the average life expectancy. John Ioannidis, a world-famous epidemiologist, has calculated the worldwide infection fatality rate from an incredible huge number of publications and comes up with 0.15%. This number also includes people who did not die of COVID-19, but of other chronic or acute diseases, um, but who had a positive PCR test, but no COVID-19 symptoms. And we know from the previous session last weekend that a PCR test is of no use for clinical diagnostic. According to this knowledge, the infection fertility rate of 0.15% must be, must be lowered even further. And just as a comparison for you, I would like to mention the infection fertility rate of cancer, which is 0.3%, which is double and of cardiovascular diseases of 0.44%, which is three times more, and still people <laughs> regularly run to fast food restaurants, even though we know that high sugar consumption is one major risk factor for this disease. So our message here is, we do not have to be afraid of this coronavirus. So I come to the uh, second point then, um, why we don't need any vaccination against coronavirus. We all have already a strong natural cross immunity against all coronaviruses, also against SARS-CoV-2. SARS-CoV-2 is not a new virus. Whether a virus is novel or not depends on the genomic sequence of the virus. SARS-CoV-2 has 82% sequence identity at the nucleate level, so on the genome level, the SARS-CoV-1, the flu in China 2003. But much more important than the nucleotide sequence is the amino acid sequence of the proteins in the code of the virus, because these proteins are the docking sites for antibodies and lymphocytes. In fact, all proteins of SARS-CoV-2, except um, of two proteins, have 95 until 100% amino acid sequence identity to the respective SARS-CoV-1 proteins, and they also have equal protein 3D structures. This is important in assessing whether antibodies or T-cells, which are already present in the body from previous coronaviruses, can recognize and bind these proteins. 
Indeed, um, only three proteins are of great importance, namely the three proteins that are embedded in the viral envelope. These are the S protein, so for spike, the M protein for membrane, and the E protein for envelope. Antibodies and lymphocytes can only neutralize the virus from outside. This means that interaction with these three proteins of the envelope is crucial. And precisely these three proteins of the SARS-CoV-2 virus are highly identical to the proteins of the virus from 2003. So we have 91% identity for the M protein, 96% for the E protein, and still 76% for the spike protein. There is a study um, from 2020 that compared all the cross immunities between proteins within the coronavirus family. In this study, the authors came to the conclusion that only 67% sequence identity needs to be present in the proteins for having cross-immunity. And we have far more identity in SARS-CoV-2 in the important code proteins. I also want to mention um, that there are already 149 studies, and these 149 studies have confirmed that we have already a big repertoire on specific T-cells and antibodies in the body against all human coronaviruses, including SARS-CoV-2. Blood plasma of individuals who were not infected with SARS-CoV-2 during the pandemic, and also blood plasma of individuals taken years before the pandemic, showed very good pre-existing cross-immunity in a multiplex assay that detected antibodies against different SARS-CoV-2 proteins. Even babies below the age of six months had already these antibodies in their blood plasma, most likely through breastfeeding. These antibodies in young children disappear, but the kids quickly come into contact with coronavirus during the time of flu each year. That in the end, at the age of 3.5 years, their children are already immune to circulating coronaviruses. Children need contact with SARS-CoV-2 as early as possible, so they can build up an immunity already from early age, which protect them by cross-immunity to new coronavirus later in life. If we lock the children away, we are changing the immune system in a way that nature did basically not intend. What we are doing to the children now, at least in Germany, is catastrophic. I want to come to the third point now, why we don't need any vaccination against coronaviruses. So besides the sequence, the high sequence identity and the viral proteins, uh, yeah, which, are, which our body already know, there's another evidence that we all have good um, cross immunity. The injection shows it. Infants who are still naive, so before the age of four, mainly produce a certain type of antibodies after um, contact with the virus. These are the IgM antibodies. The amount of these antibodies reaches an optimal plateau at the age of six years. And there is, uh, from there on is herd immunity. These IgM antibodies are not found in adults, only very, very low levels, if at all. In adults, only IgG and IgA antibodies are produced after virus infection. And IgG antibodies are also the prominent type of antibodies after the vaccination. Uh, IgM and IgA antibodies are almost not seen after the uh, injection. This is basically the final proof 
for a pre-existing cross immunity and a re-exposure of the spike proteins to a pre-existing repertoire of memory immune cells persisting in our body. Within these 149 highest quality and robust scientific studies I mentioned uh, earlier, which confirm cross immunity, there is also a publication which showed a long-lived immunity. The authors of this publication states that in recovered patients from SARS-CoV-1 infection, 2003, still possessed long-lasting memory T cells reactive to SARS-CoV-1 nucleocapsiprotein 17 years later, as well as robust cross-reactivity to SARS-CoV-2 nucleocapsiprotein. So that means natural infection cause long-lasting immune defense. The scientific evidence also destroys any narrative of the need for boosters. The pressure that you have to boost again and again because you can no longer find antibodies in the blood plasma is completely nonsense and contradicts any basic knowledge uh, in, immunology, in immunology. So the body strictly regulates the amount of antibodies in your body. Antibodies always have a residence time of a fix and then they, they are discarded from the blood. It would be a waste of resources when the, the body keeps the quantity of all antibodies always at high levels throughout lifetime. Therefore, antibodies are broken down after a while. What remains are the memory cells, which can react immediately and produce directly new antibodies when the pathogen arrives again. Keeping the quantity of antibodies high for years by regular uh, booster vaccinations is absolutely nonsense. The narrative that people get reinfected as antibody levels in the blood drop is also uh, in blood drops is also wrong. People get infected because the vaccines cannot pre prevent infections. Um, I will discuss this later in the sections. Um, so, for example, during the summer, there were just a few people infected because other external factors help the immune system, such as vitamin D levels, warm temperature, etc. But definitely not the vaccines. And while I'm on the subject of booster shots, the second narrative for booster vaccination is also wrong, namely that we always need new boosters for a new virus variant. As I mentioned before, the three proteins, S, M, and E proteins of the virus envelope are relevant as docking sites for antibodies and lymphocytes to neutralize the virus. We looked at the amino acid, amino acid sequence of these, three, uh, of these three proteins of the most relevant SARS-CoV-2 variants. Among them, there was the original sequence of the Wuhan virus from 2020, as well as um, the alpha, the beta, the delta, and now also the Omicron variant. The protein sequence of the M and E proteins of the original Wuhan virus are 100% identical in alpha, beta, and delta variants and 99 point something percent identical to the Omicron variant. So, I mean, again, 100% identity. The spike protein is also 98 to 99% identical in all five variants. The current mRNA and DNA injection that trigger antibody production against the spike protein with the Wuhan sequence should also work against the spike proteins of all other virus variants. The problem is the vaccines simply do not work. And there is absolutely no need to adjust the mRNA sequence. No way. 
No vaccine that triggers antibody production in the bloodstream can neutralize a virus that comes via the air into the lungs. It cannot physiologically work. These vaccines can never work. I will speak about that in a minute. So basically the whole thing, I think it's a big, big hoax. So in conclusion, SARS-CoV-2 is not a novel virus for me. The high identity in the protein sequence proves that. We know this virus already at least since two decades, and therefore we must and can rely on the experience and knowledge from already published data. We all display a very good and robust cross-immunity against SARS-CoV-2. Our immune system can easily handle this virus. We are not dying from the virus. Some people die because they have underlying diseases which weaken their immune system. They die due to a weak immune system. Um, I think I make a break here. So and um, maybe uh, there are some questions before I um, go for the next chapter. We will, we will wait for the questions. Uh, dear colleagues, let us ask our questions at the end of the witnesses, expert witnesses testimony. So I shall continue. Yes, please. <clears throat> okay, then I come to message two, which you should know. The so-called vaccinations are inefficient and useless. So besides the already existing robust natural cross-immunity in us, which I just mentioned, the public should know that Pfizer has cheated. Peter Doshi, one editor of the famous journal, the British Medical Journal, published um, last year, major concerns about the trustability and significance of the reported efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine. He has criticized that conflicts of interest existed in the conduct of the phase three clinical trial. Three of four experts, the Pfizer personnel, who decided whether symptoms that occurred could be attributed to COVID-19 disease and whether the subjects should therefore undergo a PCR test. This is of importance since it has emerged that the phase three study displays serious errors, including at least partial unblinding of the study. A very large number of individuals with symptoms in both the vaccinated and placebo group were excluded from the study for various reasons and no one knows why. Also, the vaccinated persons received three to four times more medications for post-vaccination side effects than the placebo group. That means that these persons may have escaped the data collection as symptomless, although they had an infection. Numerous technical errors occurred in the study. So basically, that this study should have been declared invalid as manipulations cannot be ruled out. So it is very questionable whether the high, rela uh, high relative vaccine efficacy is true at all. The manufacturers use the relative risk reduction for its statistics, but this number is actually not relevant. Instead, they should have used the absolute risk reduction, which also includes the probability of being infected at all in the population. You must also include the number of persons in the study who do not get symptoms, but still get infected with SARS-CoV-2. So if we calculate the absolute risk reduction of the four vaccines, we are at a protective effect of only about 1% or below. 1% is not enough. Each vaccination is stopped below 50%. Also, very, very few positive cases were found during the study. 
the statistical power is practically zero. In a serious scientific work, work uh, these results would be meaningless and unthinkable to publish. For example, if only one person out of 20,000 of the placebo group gets sick, by chance or not by chance, and no person in the vaccinated group gets sick, then according to this strange logic of the vaccine manufacturers, we will get 100% efficacy. This is ridiculous. And the real numbers were not much higher. So the meaning of, the, of this efficacy must be clearly questions. Question. So the point two is why the vaccines are completely inefficient. The lung has its own defense system against pathogens. It is very important to know that the antibodies formed outside the lungs and the spleen or lymph nodes after vaccination float with the bloodstream and can never reach the virus that enters the lung with the air. First of all, the antibodies in the blood cannot cross the inner wall of the blood vessels, which is lined with a specific cell layer. It's so-called the endothelium. This endothelium is a barrier. There are some organs which have holes in the, in the endothelium, like in the liver. So, and there are also some organs which have uh, small pores, uh, pores in the, uh, in the endothelium. This is, for example, in the glomerulus of the kidney and on the bone marrow for better uh, blood exchange. But uh, in all other organs, including the lung, this endothelium layer is continuous. Uh, there, is there are no holes, so the antibodies cannot get out of the blood vessels and never reach the, the, the small air bubbles in the lung. And there's also a second uh, barrier, it's the epithelium. So basically you have the epithelium here, and uh, if a respiratory virus comes with the air, the air is here on the top, and um, then the antibodies are produced in the lung, tissue and lymphoid organs here below the barrier. And basically only IgA and IgM antibodies produced in the lung, and these antibodies can cross this epithelium in the lung and reaches the virus. Why? Because there are transporters in this barrier which bind these antibodies and uh, take them up, uh, transport them through the cells and release them on the other side of the barrier where the virus are located. And these two antibodies, IgA and IgM, are basically not produced in the vaccinated people. So IgM, almost nothing, you see nothing, and IgA very low, at very low levels. So the, the main majority, I, I think it's more than 90%, are IgG antibodies. But IgG antibodies in the lung tissue can never cross the epithelium, never, because there are no transporters for these kind of antibodies. So it's completely useless. So there are two barriers. So the vaccination produces antibodies with a wrong species, and there are two barriers which they cannot cross. So this vaccination can never prevent infection or neutralization of the virus in these air bubbles in the lung. <laughs> so it could be that some are saying, oh, it is proven that the generated antibodies after vaccination can neutralize the virus. Yes, but this is only possible in an in vitro experiment in an artificial cell culture system, never in vivo in a human body. So what you do in this experiment is you have a bottle of isolated antibodies and the bottle of, um, uh, of the virus, of an artificial virus. Then you put the antibodies to the virus 
you mix and then you put it on a cell, cell culture, so cell layer. And then you look whether it's neutralizing the virus infection or not. Of course, this is possible because you mix before antibodies together with, with the virus. But this never happens in the body. So <laughs> this is all ridiculous. So in conclusion, so uh, the antibodies are absolutely useless to prevent any infection and they cannot neutralize the virus in the lung. So should I continue with the next message? Uh, we are, um, some of our experts un are under pressure. Um, okay, okay. So please um, give them a chance to uh, tell us whether one of them or two of them need to be uh, pulled forward in our chrono chronology. I'm up next then? Yes. Right now? Okay, fantastic. So is the sh screen sharing capabilities activated? There we go. Let me just get to this. So my name is Deanna McLeod, and I am the principal and founder of a medical research firm called Kaleidoscope Strategic. Um, I have a background in immunology and psychology from McMaster University, which is the home of evidence-based medicine here in Canada. I worked, uh, my particular perspective is unique in that I've worked from in, in industry uh, for 10 years in many roles in medical marketing and sales. And uh, I became concerned at the end of about 1999 by a trend that I saw in pharmaceuticals uh, where benefits were emphasized and risk minimized, both in how they conducted their trials, both in how they conducted their marketing uh, and also their business practices. So in uh, 2000, I launched and founded an independent medical research firm that was designed to help clinicians prepare objective clinical guidelines. So we provide research, medical research, writing, uh, administrative support to help that. So what we're doing is we've worked with about uh, with hundreds of doctors in Canada to prepare guidelines in oncology, and we spend a lot of time looking at clinical trials and clinical trial design. And one of the unique perspectives that we have is we've acquired over the years an ability to see how pharmaceutical companies manipulate data. And so um, when I'm presenting, what I'm doing is I'm bringing our uh, firm's many years of experience in preparing these guidelines uh, to look at specifically the Pfizer phase three trial um, and particularly the six month publication or the six month follow up data for that particular trial. And I'd like to highlight a number of things uh, that would make me question whether the purported reported benefits and risks are actually accurate. So moving on to that, one of the reasons why I'm choosing to look at the phase three clinical trial for the Pfizer data is that here in Canada, Pfizer is the backbone of all mRNA vaccines. Uh, and although there is also use for Moderna, it's much more limited. And Pfizer is the vaccine that's being uh, promoted for children. Um, and what I wanted to do, because this particular trial is the backbone trial, meaning that all the other trials are built on this trial, I wanted to make sure that in scrutinizing this data, that it was, it was that the benefits and risks were actually fairly reported. Um, and so that's what we're going to get into. And in Canada here, one of the other things, too, is that there's a lot of discussion, you know, after this phase three trial was completed at two months with two months follow up and they uh, began the mass vaccination rollout. Uh, they then shifted to observational studies and observational studies being real world analysis of data. 
that basically said, you know, we, you know, this vaccination rate is this high and our numbers were this. And we looked at COVID-19 cases, et cetera. But that type of data is actually fright with uh, bias. Uh, it is very difficult to interpret correctly. And so our firm basically sought to look at exactly the level one data, because that is the only way that you can actually create a causal link. So if you don't, if you have an observational trial, you can say it's associated and there may be a benefit. Uh, but the only way to actually prove something in clinical trials is in a, the context of a phase three trial. And so proving efficacy or proving safety. And that's what we're going to look at today. So I know that uh, my colleague Vanessa mentioned some of the, the strengths and limitations of this particular trial. Um, but one of the things that I want to highlight is the fact that it was conducted in healthy individuals, which is not uncommon um, whenever you're thinking about a vaccine trial, because what you want to do is you want to treat the healthy in order to minimize transmission to uh, the more vulnerable people in the society who might not be able to mount an appropriate immune response. However, um, if the vaccine or the purported vaccine, I'll call it an inoculation, is unable to stop transmission, then it actually isn't a vaccine and should be studied in actual population that it is meant to benefit. And in this case, the benefit of the population at risk was specifically elderly people in Canada in long-term care facilities specifically with multiple comorbidities. And in addition, uh, one of the things that we found when we did a, a Royal Commission report in Canada was that these uh, patients were also had um, the, the, the majority of them had, uh, I guess, documentation that said that they would have no medical intervention. So it's it's a wildfire where you have a disease that transmits through community spread. Um, you have elderly patients who have no strong immune systems. Um, uh, you, all that we we have under resourced facilities and uh, we have a virus, and, and then we have people who basically have mandates that say no medical intervention. So you can imagine that in Canada, the death rates were very, very high. In fact, 81% of the death rates were in people who had uh, who were in long-term care facilities. So studying a treatment, which we'll call an inoculation because I don't really think it qualifies as a vaccine, in a population of healthy people does not help us with the problem that is specific to long-term care facility transmission in elderly people who are immunocompromised. Um, and again, I believe my other colleagues uh, mentioned this, but the vaccine, the inoculation should have been compared to uh, the standard of care if we wanted to prove something. And the standard of care was natural immunity and treatment. Uh, it was not uh, placebo in the sense of non-treat or non somebody without any natural immunity. So we should have basically compared those two things uh, rather than comparing it to a placebo. Um, and based on the trial design, we cannot say anything about whether the inoculation is better or worse than natural immunity because they weren't compared. Uh, in terms of uh, the testing, it's also been mentioned previously uh, that it was selective testing. They did not systematically test uh, for the, um, they did not do systematic testing in the sense that they waited for somebody to be symptomatic and then they were able to, they left it at the discretion of the investigator to actually test or not to test. And what that actually did was it created an investigator bias. And I think my colleague also mentioned the fact that they were taking um, treatments to lower temperatures that might have minimized symptoms. There might have been infection without symptom, which might have been uh, compromised the efficacy endpoint in that regard. Um, but they also um, weren't able to detect asymptomatic infections. And um, 
also they didn't use the standard virological test. So for instance, in our, when we're looking at clinical trials, we want to make sure that whatever test they're using to determine the efficacy point, endpoint is validated. And the standard for uh, testing viruses is a virological assay, and that was not used. So when we look at a trial like this, we immediately begin to say, you know, is this uh, a manipulated endpoint? And that's what we begin to question. Um, Further to that, let me just keep going here. Um, The endpoints for the trial, and again, I'm going to focus in on the primary endpoints because the primary endpoints are such that the study is actually designed to detect statistical significance in those particular endpoints. One of the endpoints was, uh, of course, COVID-19 symptoms plus uh, um, a positive PCR test seven days after the second dose. And the second one was um, safety data. So the safety data, there were different forms of safety data collected. One was solicited, and that was the reactogenicity data. And they only looked at a subset of patients. Uh, they only tested um, that the reactogenicity in a subgroup of patients, not the whole trial, and they only did it for seven days. And then they had unsolicited safety. So that means that a patient could say, um, you know, I'm not feeling well, and they would report it in an open diary, and then they would mention it. And if it was a severe, uh, any type of adverse event, unsolicited adverse event, that it would basically be recorded for one month only. And if it was a severe or serious outcome, it would be reported for six months. So you can imagine that if you're reporting the endpoint, continuously monitoring the endpoint, but only measuring or monitoring the safety data for seven days or one to six months, then what you'll miss is a lot of the safety data. And so there was minimal, there was inappropriate safety monitoring for this particular trial, especially when you're considering that you're using a genetic therapy um, uh, in, a, in a population of healthy people. They also focused on clinical rather than subclinical endpoints. And when I'm talking about subclinical endpoints, that means that they didn't look at biomarkers and different factors. So they could have been looking at D-dimer um, levels, for instance, if they were suspicious that thrombosis might be or thrombosis, thrombosis might be an issue. Um, and the other thing, too, is that the secondary endpoint was severe COVID-19 Symptoms. So although we're claiming that it reduces both uh, COVID-19 cases and severe COVID-19 cases, the other one was a secondary endpoint and the numbers and events were insufficient to actually establish causality. Um, Finally, I'd like to talk about the fact that um, really what we want to be looking at is all-cause morbidity and all-cause mortality. All-cause morbidity means looking at you know, the sickness from the the disease, COVID-19, as well as the sickness from uh, the actual vaccine, both looking at the symptoms and the symptomic burden for that and also for the death related to that. And of course, the the particular, um, uh, the trial reported um, de-emphasized that and emphasized something that really isn't clinically significant, which is symptomatic positive PCR tests. And the reason for that is that we, the majority of those symptomatic cases were mild and really not of a concern. Uh, what we really needed to know was whether it was going to stop COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths in elderly people, and whether the all-cause morbidity and mortality was higher in the inoculation group versus um, the placebo group. 
So, and I guess the other final thing is, and we mentioned this earlier, is if it's going to be presented as a, uh, a vaccine, then it would have to be, we would have to be able to prove that it stops transmission. And this was never part of the clinical trial design. And so therefore, anybody who's claiming that it stops transmission would be making false claims. Um, anybody that claims that uh, it is reduces severe COVID-19 disease based on this trial would be, uh, again, making false claims because the number of events weren't sufficiently high. And anybody who's making claims regarding lowering deaths, again, would not be supported by this particular trial. So I do want to emphasize the fact that uh, after two months, we had a crossover. So there was an unblinding of the two groups. And uh, when the, they were unblinded people in the placebo group were offered the opportunity to cross over into the inoculation group. And about um, more than 80% of the people, I believe it was close to 89% of the people actually crossed over. And what that means is that as of two months, we no longer have efficacy and safety data from a controlled trial. So all the safety data that we're going to be looking at, and that's the angle that I want to be looking at, specifically, is really obfuscated by the fact that now most of the placebo group have actually been inoculated. And so when we present the data, we'll be looking at the unblinded phase, which was really only two months of the trial. And we don't actually get the full benefit of a randomized clinical trial to the point of six months, which is this data, because of this crossover. Um, and I don't want to uh, ascribe intent However, uh, there is a great benefit if you're interested in minimizing safety to have your placebo group cross over at a very early stage. Therefore, you will never be able to have a causal link to long-term safety issues. Um, when it comes to efficacy, one of the things that we noticed in this particular trial report is something called combined efficacy endpoints. So one of the things in the, the, this particular trial, as they noted in the discussion, was that the immunity was waning at about four to six months in the adult population. And this is a publication that presents six-month follow-up data. Uh, and in this particular publication, what they did, instead of reporting adult outcomes, as they should have, as a follow-up to the original two-month report, what they did is they combined the reporting of the efficacy outcomes of adults and adolescents. Uh, and the adult outcomes, of course, had six months of follow-up, but the adolescents had two months of follow-up. And by combining these two together, what they did was they boosted the, the numbers overall so that they could continue to report a 90%-ish efficacy rate. Um, and that was likely due to the boosting of the younger adolescent group, which was basically only followed up for two months. So we actually, at this point, do not know what the efficacy at six months was for the inoculation in adults. That data was not provided in the particular report. So one of the other things that I'm going to do here is I want to compare what we did was we pulled the data from the supplements uh, and we compared it to how they were presenting the data for efficacy. And we used the same treatment using relative risk reductions and absolute risk reductions, as Vanessa had noted previously. And we put them in one table so that you can compare um, the efficacy versus the uh, risks of this particular vaccine by looking at uh, by looking at it in one particular table. So here you'll see for symptomatic cases, which is again our primary endpoint, there was a net reduction in the number of symptomatic cases from the inoculation group to the placebo group. And there's our beautiful 91% efficacy. Remember that this is both adults and adolescents combined. It's not adults alone. 
Uh, and what that does is it provides about a 4% absolute risk change, which is over here, minus 4%. So there is a purported benefit, but if you're inoculating uh, 20,000 people, a 4% benefit is not that great. It's not, a, it's not dramatic. Here, it looks much better whenever you're looking at relative risk change. And that's why they tend to emphasize that because that looks much more impressive than the 4% benefit that you're getting when you're looking at an absolute risk change, which is the number of people who are actually benefiting from the inoculation. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just jump right here to the other primary endpoint. And these are all primary endpoints. So treatment-related adverse events, severe adverse uh, effects, and serious adverse effects are all primary endpoints of this trial, which have not been mentioned to the same degree as the efficacy. And one of the things you'll note here is that in the inoculation group, the investigators ascribed adverse effects, which when you looked at the reactogenicity data, are actually COVID-like symptoms, to 5,241 um, uh, people who participated. And in the placebo arm, only 1,311 for a 300% increase. And if you consider that the absolute risk increase was minus 4%, that's the benefit there, the risk is plus 18% here. So there's more people at risk with this particular inoculation than you have people benefiting from the inoculation overall. When we look at severe, when we look at severe cases here, you can see that there's a net difference of 22. This number of events is clearly not uh, clinically meaningful. 22 difference is not, but although if you put it in a relative risk change uh, setting, then it looks like 96%. However, there's only a 0.1% benefit overall to reducing severe uh, symptomatic COVID cases. So again, uh, an overemphasis by looking at the relative risk reduction and a very modest or minor benefit overall. However, when we look at severe adverse effects associated with the vaccine, you see that in this group, you have 262 versus 150. So that's a difference of 100 cases, severe adverse effect cases here, and an increase in 75%, and it's an absolute risk increase of 0.5%. So again, what we're seeing here, again, when it comes to severe cases and severe adverse effects, that you have more risk than you do benefit for this particular inoculation. When we look at serious adverse events, which are very concerning to me because we're treating very healthy people, and a severe, serious adverse event as defined in this particular study is an event that requires inpatient hospitalization, is life-threatening, results in death or persistent disability. And you can see once again that you have more severe adverse events, 127 versus 116, uh, in the inoculation group, which is an increase of 10%. And the incidence of these is about the same as the risk of many people in getting COVID-19 overall. I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's small, but significant when you're considering how severe those adverse events are. If we look at, so that is as close as we got to looking at all-cause morbidity versus benefit. And here, when we're looking at deaths, Again, we went to the supplements table and we pulled the deaths. And these deaths are basically from the unblinded phase only, which means it's the first two months uh, of the actual trial or the first two months of follow-up from that actual trial. Uh, because they crossed over, then it's more difficult to find out. But in this unblinded phase, the deaths were comparable, 15 to 14 uh, inoculation to placebo. However, we have to remember that this is a very healthy population with their diseases that were controlled with controlled disease. So to see this number of deaths in the placebo arm where they actually caught COVID-19 might be reasonable, 
uh, within the, a two-month time frame uh, in 40,000 people. But to see this many deaths when people are purportedly not getting COVID-19 uh, but are getting inoculated is concerning to us. Uh, when we looked at the deaths after unblinding, you can see here that there were five deaths in the unblinded phase. Oops, sorry, excuse me. I'm missing a number there. Um, there were five deaths in this case and zero deaths in the placebo arm for a total of 20 in the inoculation arm and 12, 14 in the placebo arm. So again, just to be clear, after uh, the patients who were in the placebo arm crossed over and received their inoculation, there were an additional five deaths uh, for a total of 20 deaths in people who were inoculated in this study and 14 in the placebo. Again, we have to consider that at least in this particular case for the second half, there were more patients who had gotten inoculated than the placebo group, but still this is concerning. This is not the, the trend that we would like to be seeing. And finally, if we actually look at COVID-19 related deaths, there was really only a difference of one death between the inoculation arm and the placebo arm. Um, however, when we looked at cardiovascular deaths, we saw that there were nine cardiovascular deaths in the inoculation arm and five in the placebo arm. So again, what we're seeing is if our desire was to see morbidity and mortality decrease in the target population, which was elderly people, what we're seeing in this particular study is an increase in morbidity in the sense of risk and mortality in a healthy population. And so we are very much familiar with cancer research. And if we ever saw something like this in cancer research, we would not even proceed with administering this to people who have, were in the end of their life. So uh, these results are extremely concerning. And I'm just going to touch base very briefly on the, the companion trials uh, that were conducted for children. And so one of the things that they do is they create a phase three trial and then they basically do these companion trials where they, uh, in this particular case, they're called immunobridging trials. And these immunobridging trials, basically, we're just focusing at antibody, um, neutralizing antibody titered uh, production. And what they did, rather than doing a clinical trial, you know, if we were to be thinking about the people who are at greatest risk, it would be children. Uh, they're at no risk of severe disease. Therefore, what we would have liked to see is the safety being much higher, the much more rigorous, larger numbers of, of people enrolled, uh, very strong endpoints like clinical, you know, subclinical uh, um, safety, clinical safety, uh, long-term safety, morbidity, mortality. We would have liked to see all of that. However, the trial that was designed or the endpoint that was used to approve these vaccines or these inoculations was non-inferiority of the neutralizing antibody titers, which what that means is that they compared antibody titers in, in people who were 12 to 15 years, and they compared them to antibody titers in 16 to 25 year olds. So this study wasn't even designed to make any claims regarding clinical efficacy or safety. And anybody who makes clinical efficacy or safety claims based on this study is basically misreporting or making false claims. Again, they did the same thing with five to 11 year olds, again, a slightly uh, smaller dose, and they compared them to the neutralizing antibodies of 16 to 25 year olds. And if you could note here that the number of uh, patients or people enrolled in each of those two cohorts is very small. Uh, and so this is the basis by which we're moving forward with the vaccination of, of children. Now, they did, uh, you know, enroll a thousand uh, 
people in the clinical side of things and in the placebo side of things, about a thousand in each arm. Um, and these particular endpoints, unlike the main, the main trial, are descriptive endpoints. So they're not meant to actually claim anything, but they do give us some sort of a window into, you know, the benefits and risks of the inoculation in this particular group. And I'm just going to very quickly move to this side because this is the absolute risk change. And this is the one that we really need to keep an eye on when we're looking at absolute clinical or clinically meaningful benefit. For symptomatic cases, it was minus 2%. So there was a, a reduction based on this. And if you can note here that it's really only a difference of 15 cases. And we also have to note that symptomatic cases in children are really not clinically concerning. So I would probably move to say that this is a clinically meaningless endpoint. Uh, again, they're, uh, for, they're at no risk of severe disease. And of course, there was no differences in severe disease. So that's not a benefit for them. Uh, and however, if we look at treatment-related adverse effects, what we see is this concerning trend again, where we have more risks or more adverse events in the inoculation arm than the placebo arm. And I'm just going to emphasize this very carefully. The types of adverse events that were reported in the, uh, the placebo arm and the inoculation arm are very similar, and they're clinical symptoms. They're, they're uh, COVID-like symptoms for the most part at, when they were reported, at least based on the reactogenicity data. To see more COVID-like symptoms in people being inoculated versus the people who are actually getting COVID-19, according to this particular data, is very uh, curious. And again, that's a 1% increase in adverse events here. But when we look at severe adverse events, remember, there's no benefit here. And suddenly there's an increased number, although small, of serious adverse events in the inoculation arm for a 0.4% increase. And again, when we look at the serious adverse events, and remember that this means uh, inpatient hospitalization, life-threatening results in death or permanent disability, we have four of those in the inoculation arm versus one in the placebo arm. And how many patients or how many children that you know where they get, where you take a thousand children and you treat them, that you would allow four of them to have inpatient hospitalization, a life-threatening event results in death or permanent disability if they're at no risk of severe disease. So again, because this is descriptive statistics, we can't ascribe cause to the inoculation and say that it is causing harm. However, it certainly looks like the trend is in the similar direction at two months as the data was for the adults at six months. I'm just going to move very quickly to our wee ones, the 5 to 11-year-olds who are being inoculated. Again, no risk of severe disease, no episodes of severe disease, slight differences in the number of, of um, actual COVID-positive symptomatic COVID positive events or cases here. Um, but we can see again here that in terms of any adverse event, it's 46 versus 16. So they're actually getting COVID-like symptoms more in the inoculation group than we are in the placebo group. And just on that note, what we would say if we started to see something like this, where the symptoms were similar in both groups, and you're getting more in the inoculation group than you would in the placebo group, we would begin to say, how uh, rigorous or how reliable is the actual test that you're using to uh, ascribe efficacy. I'm just going to whisk past this. This is the whistleblower report from the BMJ that basically uh, questioned the integrity of the data that was going into this. Uh, we've Our firm is basically questioning the reporting of the data and the emphasis of the data 
Uh, we definitely noticed some tricks in terms of trying to boost efficacy and minimize safety by underreporting, um, and also by using, you know, considering one was relative risk reduction, and then what they did with safety was they buried it in the supplements and they considered it as percentages. Um, and the other thing too that we look at when we see um, this type of reporting is we immediately go to say what are the conflicts of interest who wrote, who conducted the trial and who wrote up the report. Uh, because, you know, the, the conclusions for this particular report were that the, the inoculation was both safe and effective uh, when we took a closer look at and with no uh, concerns related safety, uh, no new safety concerns, I believe is how they actually phrased it in the six month trial. Uh, and we would not agree with that conclusion whatsoever based on our analysis. And therefore we go to look at conflicts of interest and it is notable that um, there were conflicts of interest, significant conflicts of interest in the majority of people who were involved in this trial, notably employment and stock for the corresponding author, the last author, and notably the two BioNTech founders who basically have earned $9 billion at the time when we made, you know, I think this was made uh, early in the fall of last year. So again, have made incredible amounts of money based on this particular report. So we're trusting these people with these incredible conflicts of interest. Um, and again, even uh, the, the senior author, the lead author, S.J. Thomas, has had conflicts of interest. They do have, they've experienced grant or consultancy or clinical trial development. Uh, and notably also, and I just discovered this recently, is after the publication of this particular trial result, which basically boosted the Pfizer stock prices, the CEO of Pfizer divested of their of his stocks. Um, and I, you know, again, this is pure speculation. But if I were uh, an insider and I knew the safety data, uh, and I knew the underpinnings of the safety data and what had gone on behind the scenes, then I would probably be concerned about people eventually finding out about this uh, safety issues. Uh, and might very well be prone to divest of my stocks as well. So um, my position is such that uh, this trial should have never been passed, that uh, it, there were issues of, of uh, I can't, you know, again, it's hard to ascribe causality, but definitely there were tendencies towards overemphasizing benefits uh, and minimizing risk. Uh, both in the manner in which that it was unblinded and crossed over the short duration of trial, uh, the short monitoring periods for the safety results, the questionable test used for efficacy. Um, and again, the emphasis on clinical benefit uh, without really taking a very close look at the safety. And I would have loved to see all of the um, un, uh, the unsolicited adverse events to see what kind of adverse events they were reported. But again, all that they allowed us to see was COVID-like symptoms in both groups. And so again, I would say that that's an obfuscation of safety data and that that's minimizing the representation. So it would be difficult for me to understand how, based on the reporting of this particular trial, anybody could possibly say that they had informed consent uh, when they agreed to the inoculation. Thank you very much. Deanna, thank you very much for this devastating testimony. Um, let me just add one thing, uh, because we want to ask our questions at the end of this session. Uh, your findings, your group's findings, have been confirmed by a whistleblower from one of the companies or the company that conducted the trials for Pfizer. Um, I believe her name is... Uh, 
Brooke Armstrong. Um, and we will delve into that in more detail tomorrow because this has significant economic impact as well. Their share price is uh, dropping rapidly right now. Thank you very much. Who will be next? Sujarit. Vanessa, listen. If I could come in now, and you could take the take uh, take it over afterwards, because you uh, and uh, it have just given me, you know, a sort of uh, the right starting point. Would you would you consent that I come in with my fifteen minutes? I don't need longer, and you could take over from there. No, it's fine with me. Thank you, because time is running for me too. Um, listen, these have been very, very important uh, informations and presentations. And um, I want to bring in another aspect, which is we don't have to really, we don't really have to dis discuss very much anymore because also uh, molded in the Nuremberg Codex, If anything is under experimental use, if an experiment is ongoing as it is right now, we are at the R&D stage, then whenever something happens that is a clear indication that that agent that is being administered to the experimental group is causing illness and death, It has to be stopped. And you must first delve into the question of whether it could be the reason. Now, we are not talking about one or two or three cases. We're talking about thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of cases of serious adverse events. And so, for this simple reason, if the propagators and the instigators of this whole vaccine madness cannot show that it is not due to the vaccine, it must be stopped on the spot. Now, we have heard from Vanessa that the vaccines could never work in the first place, and they don't work. And we don't have to ask whether protective antibodies, so-called, are being produced or not, because they're not playing any role in preventing infection, and that's what we're witnessing all the time. So... Let's go, not go off on a tangent and stick to the point. If there can be no protection, can there be any damage? And there, of course, the answer is, of course, because these, I'll talk about the mRNA, although the adenovector uh, vaccines are similar. Uh, the, these so-called vaccines have two toxic components. One being the envelope, the packaging, and people should be made aware of the fact that these lipid packages have never been tested and passed for safety, never been tested in any animal or human model. And yet, although they are only chemicals that have never received license for use in humans, 
they are being used on billions of people. This, these people who continue to do so have to go to jail. There's no other way because these lipids are now known to be highly inflammatory. They are similar to one of the major bacterial toxins and killers of mankind, the so-called endotoxin, which is the cause of the cytokine storms when you have a bacterial infection. And these lipids do the same thing. This has been published and shown, and there's no doubt that when one injects people with these vaccines, you are putting poison into the body, poison that causes severe illness and death in animals. And this cannot be allowed. Apart from these lipids, which have many pathways to injuring you, we have the gene of the virus itself encoding the spike protein. And that can lead to harm via so many mechanisms. But the two major categories will be, first, the spike itself, when it is produced by your body cell and released by the body cell, is a poison. The spike itself is a poison. Now, this is something that people now know. It wasn't known, you know, uh, five years ago, but now we know it and it's published. And so you cannot inject an agent that causes the production of a poison. It's ridiculous. Um, second, when this spike starts to be produced, the cells producing the spikes are going to be attacked by the immune system. This is a fact. Everyone knows this. Anyone who studied medicine must know this. If they don't know this, then they must be stripped of their, they have to be prevented from practicing medicine. They have to. There's no excuse for not knowing this. So we have basic mechanisms that are straightforward, and of course they must occur. The systemic effects are predictable, and when we predicted them one year ago, it was no big deal because it, they had, it, it, there was no other way they were going to work. The only thing that one had to assume was that these substances would enter the bloodstream, enter the circulation, well, it would go to the lymph nodes and then enter the circulation. Uh, and this is the first major lie that everyone was confronted with by the FDA, the EMA, the producers. The agents would stay in the muscle. But anyone who studied medicine must know that if you inject something into the muscle, it's going to reach the lymph nodes. And anyone who studied medicine must know that if something reaches the lymph nodes and it is not a protein, it will reach the bloodstream. And that, of course, was known. Pfizer was forced to reveal these data to the Japanese authorities who asked for them. And it's all there for anyone to read. And now it's all there for anyone to read 
uh, who, who, who knows about human medicine because it's now been proven that the spikes appear in the bloodstream and lo and behold, they don't appear for one day or two days. If they appear in the bloodstream, the producing cell must be touching the bloodstream because there's no other way for a spike, which is a protein, to reach the bloodstream unless the producing cell is not directly in contact. This is something so simple, so elementary in medicine that if a doctor says, I don't know this, he's got to get his license taken away. Now, what happens if we know that the spike is in the bloodstream? We know that the mRNA has reached the circulation and in all probability has reached the lining of the vessels, which are the endothelial cells. That, of course, will create a focus for vessel damage. And that is what we said one year ago. Uh, it's got to happen. You've got to get vessel damage. What will happen then? The vessels will leak. What will happen then? If the vaccines are still there, they will be leak into the tissues, into the heart, into the lungs, into the liver, into the brain, into whatever you want. And if those cells begin to produce the spikes, they are going to come under attack by the immune system because this is what the immune system is trained to do. And as Vanessa told you, we all have killer lymphocytes that have been trained over the years to kill those cells that are producing the spike. So you are going to get vessel damage. Where this damage occurs, if there's a God, he knows, we do not. Because it's going to be haphazard, probably in the small vessels where the blood flows slowly, so there's lots of time for the cells to take up these damn substances and produce them. Small vessels, probably. You know, the vessels in the brain, these sinus vessels, the, the, the veins in the brain, there the blood sometimes is almost stopping. Or in the heart, you know, when you have the heart beating, the effort, with every beat, there's a pause <laughs> where the blood stops to flow. So, of course, those are the predilection sites where these Patches, packages are going to be taken up. And those are the organs that one would think are going to be hit. Um, the same, by the way, for the spleen, because the blood flow in the spleen is, is complicated, it's known, but you have very slowly flowing blood there. Now, what will happen? You will be getting damage to the blood vessels that will cause blood clots. This is also what we said a year ago. We are goddamn worried that these clots are going to form in the whole body. It may form in the brain of one person, the heart of another person, the liver, the, who knows? Because this is what one calls uh, destiny. It's destiny. Now, the brain is especially fascinating because the brain is full of small blood vessels going through the whole brain, keeping your brain cells alive, gray cells, white cells. And 
the tiniest disturbance can lead to death of nerve cells. And the death of nerve cells, depending on where these cells are, can produce anything, anything you want to think of. Of course, the whole thing may just start with a headache, splitting headaches, which are the typical uh, symptoms that about 50% of everyone getting the second shot complains of. But it's only headaches are already the first sign that clots are forming in the brain. But, you know, if you're unlucky, you start to get uh, palsies. Nerves are falling away. The eyes start becoming unseeing. The ears don't hear anymore. People start getting paralysis. Where that happens, no one knows. But there are other things that are going on. Dear colleagues, many people tell me that they are seeing psychological changes in people. The whole personality changes. Now, you know, we have our brain with the limbic system that is you. It's your person. You have been, this is the human being. God-given, if there is a God. I'm a Buddhist, you see. But I believe in nature and that we are all individuals. Each has developed during his lifetime to become what he is now. And this is all, the, your, your, your whole personality, everything that is human is here. It starts there, it ends there. Your memory. So people are getting Alzheimer's. Some people are developing symptoms that are horribly similar to mad cow disease. You know, I don't want to go into this. I'm just telling you that the vision is so horrible, so horrible. Now, next and last, and then I'm finished because I don't, you know, um, no, not, not yet. Uh, I told you that these vaccines must reach the lymph nodes. And it is now known that they reach the lymph nodes. It is known that the cells in the lymph nodes are going to die. Why they die and how they die, we don't have to discuss yet, but they will die. And the cells in your lymph nodes are the cells that are keeping you alive because they are taking care of latent infections in your body, viral infections, shingles, and blah, 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 tuberculosis in 95% of the world population of the third world. And I have the tuberculosis uh, bacterium in my lung. I don't want to get that shot. If I, my lymph node cells start dying, the cells that are responsible for controlling tuberculosis, this is what's going to happen, I tell you. And the same, not the same cells, but other cells are responsible for, for keeping cancer cells under control. Cancer cells that are arising all the time in our body. All the time. People who have had cancer have lost control once. They may be healed now, but they are also healed because their controlling lymphocytes are also there to keep the cancer cells that come anew get eliminated. And we're hearing stories all over the world 
of strange cases of uh, tumors exploding into action into people. Very strange, isn't it? Now, now we know we're looking at an agent that has no benefit whatsoever. No benefit. Zero. But has the capacity over a myriad pathways to kill you and has been killing and is killing and is going to kill our children. How can anyone stand to see this happen? We don't have to talk about anything else. Look at the Nuremberg Code. It is, I think it's number six. If there's any suspicion that an agent in the experimental phase is causing illness and death, that experiment has to be stopped on the spot. And this has nothing to do with, con- con- what is it, um, um, consent. It has to be stopped. Now, I'm going to finish now. Listen, if this were a question of one or two days, you know, Pfizer's going to come, BioNTech says, yes, it, I'm okay, the benefit is still greater than because the risk only goes on for one or two days when, when this mRNA is causing the spikes to be produced. And in fact, yes, there are cases where this has been acknowledged to happen. This, there have been a few cases, but they're so rare now, listen, you guys. You know that how long has it been, Vanessa, in the last six weeks or, no, two months? Two months ago, this paper appeared that was so shocking that the spike protein can be found in the blood of vaccinated people for, what was it, uh, Vanessa, three, four weeks? I don't really care. It was many weeks. And uh, so we were asking ourselves, how can that be? Because we know that this uh, mRNA has been tampered with to make it long-lived. But how long-lived is the mRNA? Question, answer. The answer has been published now in a paper called Cell. You know, Cell is one of these papers where you say, my God, if something is spelled, it's like uh, the word of God. It's not fake. It's true. 60 days after vaccination, they could still find the mRNA in the lymph nodes, lymph nodes of the vaccinated. They did not look further. But do you know what's happening to those billion people who have received this damn vaccine? It has been in their body creating the poisonous spikes that is killing people for at least 60 days. Now, I'm going to stop at this because I get so furious that nothing is happening. I get so furious. People are killing our children. And this, I'm afraid to say, looks premeditated. It looks premeditated. No one can say, I didn't realize this. Everything is published. Now, of course, whole case would be closed if anyone could come and show that indeed these spike proteins are being produced outside the site of injection in the whole body 
And at those sites, you have immune attack going on and organ damage. And that is why this grand jury is going to maybe make the case because we have Professor Anna Burkhardt who's going to come tonight to show you that he has the proof. The proof is there. The proof is there for anyone in the world to see. And once the proof has been shown in 15 cases, it's going to be shown in thousands of cases. And then, whoa, you protagonists and producers of the vaccine. And my prediction and my hope is that the stocks are going to plummet below the ground because they are going to go bankrupt. That is my big hope. So, Vanessa, I give the floor back to you. And then I think Anna Burkhardt is going to show you, uh, you know, what Anna has done. I think I, I'm going to propose him for the Nobel Prize. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. Because he may be the person who is saving our children. Thank you very Vanessa, much. Vanessa, you want to go back? Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm not sure because uh, Mike said that he's not feeling well, but if he's still on the Zoom uh, and if he can hear us, we should allow him to make his case because you, you just gave him the introduction. You suspect uh -huh. that this could be premeditated murder. Please, Mike, go ahead. Okay, just give me a few seconds. I'm mm -hmm. struggling to get my uh, iPad to unlock. Well, nice to see you back, Mike. <laughs> Thank you, yes. Um, this is ridiculous. I, I know how to get into this thing. Take your time. Joanna? Yeah? I, I can't seem to... Oh, here we go. Do you need, do you want me to no, I'm okay. I found it. So, uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, we can hear you. Okay. Um, so, you know, I'm well aware that uh, there's been excellent testimony already. So, so just very briefly for the record, uh, I'm Dr. Mike Eden. I've spent 32 years in the biopharmaceutical industry as a biologist, immunology, toxicology, biochemistry. Uh, I was 11 years ago or 10 years ago at Pfizer. I'm since then where I was vice president, head of respiratory and allergy research worldwide. Um, and I've spent 10 years in the biotech sector. Um, I'm speaking out because, you know, as we're hearing this afternoon, these, these vaccines are, are very bad products. Um, uh, it's been established already that it's not necessary to have a vaccine, but I think it's worth making a, a point at a higher level uh, because I know that the drug companies know this too. It's never appropriate to seek to invent, develop, manufacture and distribute a novel vaccine for a respiratory pathogen of such modest lethality, even if it was a bit worse than it is. And the reason, the reason is by the time you've done all the work necessary to establish that it's safe, because that's the watchword for any public health intervention that you might give to billions of people. That's the most important thing. It's more important than efficacy. So in, in order to establish that that's true, it's going to take you longer than any plausible expectation of the length of time a pandemic will be around. So I know I only realized this recently, really, although we've probably already known it. But so what I'm telling you is, it could never have been a proper thing to do, what, to do what they claim to have done. Of course, they haven't actually done it at all. It's, it's a fake vaccine. 
badly developed, badly designed, uh, and so on. So that's an important point. That's One quick interruption. I think that was a slip of the tongue. You said of such modest lethality. I think you meant to say such modest efficacy. No, I was sorry. Yes, no. Uh, uh, no, I think it was uh, the, because the virus is... Oh, I'm sorry. Is, it, yes, it's, no, because the virus is... It's not like it's flying Ebola. If it was 50% lethality, you would take different risk-benefit. But so for something only a little worse than flu, if that's yeah. true, it, yeah, you wouldn't do what you, all these things. So that's... And we've also established it's not necessary. There are good treatments and so on. But nevertheless, ladies and gentlemen, these vaccines have been made, these gene-based products. So we have to ask what was the intention, because it could never have worked. It could never have worked, even if it was safe, for the reasons Vanessa and Sucrid have outlined. But they've been done. So why was that? And there are various answers. One is just to make money, rip everybody off. Uh, I think, for me, the dominant reason was this control grid idea that we've talked about before, that people would have to be vaccinated to qualify for a vaccine passport, which is a digital ID. And, but there's, a, there's another possibility, though, and it was to establish in the public mind that these are legitimate products so they could use them for other purposes. And though I won't extend my thinking at this point, I think it's quite obvious why they use these particular kind of gene based products, because they're going to use them again, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, but so just uh, quickly, then. Yes, on the safety just very quickly, these are an entirely new kind of medical intervention. Although they've cunningly managed to disguise them under the word vaccine, they bear, the only thing they bear in common with traditional vaccines is the word. That's it. There's no other similarity. And so when someone says uh, you're being over cautious about safety, I will tell you that with any new class of product, in fact, every individual version of the products of any new class, you have to establish the safety in trials. People's opinions are worthless, including my own. But the, bon the onus is on the part of the manufacturer to prove safety, not for me to prove that it's harmful, although they are harmful. Um, I think we've already talked very briefly about how, and I too actually state this, these, the design of these vaccines. So I'm a drug discoverer. I spent 32 years in R&D and, and in toxicology training. So I think I can state, and you can believe me, being in that environment, these are what I would call toxic by design. That is, if you were discussing it around a whiteboard in a research office, by the time you've agreed to make a spike protein-based genetic vaccine, you know exactly what's going to happen. This is, so these are not rational design. They, they couldn't work, and they would likely carry risks. And you wouldn't be able to characterize the long term outcomes, but they did it anyway. And these are clever people from you know, highly paid drug companies with decades of experience. So the, the three faults are one, it expresses spike protein that's already been talked about without any modulation of that biology. Secondly, um, the spike is, again, genetically the least stable part of the virus. Again, that was mentioned by Alexandra. Um, thirdly, and no one's mentioned this yet, it's the part of the virus that's least different from humans. You really want to pick something that's very unique to the pathogen and very different from you. Why? Because if, you, if there are similarities, familial similarities, then when you raise an immune response to, the, to this injected material, there's a possibility of autoimmunity. And in fact, I'm confident that that is occurring and other people think so too. 
And I would say it's my opinion that the companies knew that the spike was toxic, unstable genetically, and similar to many human proteins with, with all of the consequences that you would expect from that. Obviously, they're going to need to defend themselves, but I'm telling the general public that that's my view, and I've had it confirmed by other sort of veteran drug discoverers. Um, what else shall we say? Yes, and uh, I think Secret and others talked about in the design, there is nothing that limits how long the gene is uh, transcribed to make protein. It could be minutes, hours, days, years. There's no, there's nothing about it that tells uh, us how long that will happen. We can't just say, oh, it'll be okay. What, how long is it going to last? They were not required to measure it. They were not required to measure it because they managed to persuade the regulators, or maybe they were corrupt, that these are, quote, vaccines, and they were allowed to proceed down a development pathway that's re relatively light in terms of obligations on the innovator, the drug companies. Really, it should have been classed as, uh, I would say, a, a genetic medicine, where the obligations rightly are extremely onerous and would have taken a long time, and certainly would have included measurements of how long they are producing spike for and where in the body, to its point, it's doing that. And they were not required to do either of those things. That's a catastrophic failure on the part of the regulators who knew fine what I'm saying is true because it's conventional. I've never seen an exception other than in vaccines where you do not have to study what's called pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. So they haven't done that. It should never be done again, by the way. You know, I, Bill Gates was quoted recently as saying we were a bit too slow. Uh, Mr. Gates, you're not a drug discovery person. I think I've established and I can back up what I've said, that in order to move into a public health uh, uh, you know, environment as to those billions of people, the highest obligation is safety, not even efficacy. And you can only do that by treating very large numbers of people and observing them for a long time. Not, not two and a half months. It's completely inadequate. So his suggestion that next time we'll get it done in six months, you must not let him do that. It's a completely inappropriate thing to do, and it's almost certainly going to be harmful. Um, again, um, moving on just to manufacture. Again, um, the uh, earlier colleague, um, I'm afraid I, I, she just left, uh, but she gave a good account of herself in explaining uh, that as the drug goes through as this vaccine goes through development it's necessary to demonstrate that you can manufacture the product consistently so that it is characterized as having in the vial what you say is in the vial now the clinical trials were, was done with relatively low quantities of material because they were going to dose a few tens of thousands of people at most um, but when you go into production instead of it being a few tens of thousands in total, it's going to be of the order of a billion doses, a billion doses. So this is orders of magnitude higher. What that implies, for people who don't know, is you can't use the same process for manufacturing the clinical material. It's going to be, you can't, you can't scale that up. So you have to start again and make an, an industrial scale process. When you do that, the stages required to characterize what you have made, that is the drug substance, the, the gene-based uh, material. And then when it's been formulated, what's called then the drug product, those two steps, drug substance and drug product, uh, require, uh, I would say, roughly half 
of the entire workforce of an R&D-based organization such as Pfizer. I work there. Roughly half the people are involved in that later stage of, of synthesis, manufacture, characterization, or all of that stuff. And the reason they've got 50% of their resources over there is it's very, very complicated. So the idea that they manufactured of the order of a billion doses and got all of those processes stabilized, characterized, inspected, agreed by the regulator is for the birds. They did not do those things because it's not possible to do them in under a small number of years, probably at least five years. So what, what they claim to have done, a consistent manufacturer, uh, is impossible. And the regulators know it's impossible. And it's clear to people who've read the regulatory interactions between the European Medicines Agency and Pfizer. That's the one I've actually seen because someone leaked it. In November 2020, for example, the technical assessors at the EMA in Amsterdam had listed seven what are called MOs, major objections. And they're all related to the things I've just listed. They did not have control of the processes giving rise to consistent, pure material. And they didn't have control of what happened to it uh, between manufacture and formulation, these lipid nanoparticles that Secret mentioned. Uh, seven major objections. I can just to, just to give you an example. When I was at Pfizer, if someone had filed or the department of company had filed a new drug application and even one major objection came up, heads would roll because it meant you'd not had, had a dialogue with the regulators so that, as to understand what was required by them. So to have seven listed in November 2020 and then no more than a few weeks later in December of that year, that vaccine product was given uh, whatever conditional marketing authorization, emergency use authorization. So I'll, I'll leave the listeners to decide for themselves, given what I've said to you about complexity, and I'm in close contact with people who have analogous to me in research have spent their whole life in that part of the pharmaceutical industry. Is it possible that all of those major objections were resolved? No, it's not. So what they have issued and rolled out and had injected into people are materials which, from batch to batch, vial to vial, syringe to syringe, they've got no idea what you're actually getting. And I think, I think that is probably a major contributor to the huge range of toxicity that we see in the database such as VAERS in the US. Some Batches or lots are associated with 6,000 adverse event reports and some with a small handful. That's not possible to be due to differences in, in sensitivity, not across uh, one and a half million doses per, per batch. The average should be pretty much the same. And yet they're so different. There's got to be a reason. And the reason is it's not the same stuff in each in each of the lots. So I would say it's a criminal manufacture. Uh, the authorization by the European Medicines Agency and subsequently other global regulators, I think uh, it should be investigated because I think there's criminal level of collusion and fraud to sign off these packages as suitable when they're absolutely, it's impossible that they were. Um, and then we heard from other witnesses, and, and I would agree, they don't do the things that they were intended to do. They don't protect you from infection or replication of the virus in airway or transmission. And I also I'm coming to the conclusion, looking at 
medical statistics, um, statisticians analysing the data, I'm afraid it looks like what you see in the public domain is almost certainly data fraud at the country level. So in other words, you're being lied to even then about about what these products actually do. Um, I've got, I guess, what I've listed as critical miscellany. That is, there's a group of other things I couldn't quite uh, uh, make out into a separate item. It was never appropriate, although Bill Gates said it was, you will remember, the world won't return to normal, he said, smiling, until we've pretty much vaccinated the whole planet. Uh, well, uh, the only people you, you would want to, assuming this was an appropriate route to protect people, and it wasn't, you would only want to protect the people who are at severe risk of, of harms if they're getting infected. And that would be people who are elderly, older than me, and ill, three, four concomitant morbidities, other diseases that are life-shortening. So why would you want to vaccinate the whole planet? Even if this worked, and even if it was completely safe, you would not do it, even down to the issue of money and medical resources applied to unnecessarily injecting you know, more than once billions of people who are not at risk at all. So something is seriously wrong there. I'm, I'm mentioning it because... People think it's an appropriate thing to do, and it's absolutely not. We've learned recently that people who uh, have had certain viral diseases, it's probably been known and I never knew it, uh, that if you survive certain viral diseases in childhood, it's associated with reduced chronic diseases in later adulthood, including certain cancers. So it is not, as suggested by the media, always desirable to uh, ev evade or avoid infection. Honestly, if you're a young, healthy person, you're not at any meaningful risk of severe outcomes. And if anything, I suspect that getting the lifetime immunity from this particular uh, rather bland virus for young people is, is, a, is actually slightly positive. And so it would be inappropriate. So why were they wanting to vaccinate every human being on the planet? Well, those of you who have been looking at this for a couple of years will know it's got nothing to do with public health. But again, it's this control grid idea. So that was that one. Um, yes, just quick, quickly, if mass vaccination policies were really about public health, I'll just give you three quick examples of the kind of people you wouldn't vaccinate. Uh, one is if you've had the disease already and recovered, uh, uh, as that um, um, anaesthetist in the NHS, Steve, Steve James, I think his name is, he was arguing with the UK Health Secretary, Mr Javid, uh, saying, I'm not going to be vaccinated, amongst other reasons, I'm already immune having been infected. So it's a dangerous thing to do. It's not, oh, well, maybe you'll give them more protection. No, it's a dangerous thing. If they already have immunity to the virus, including to the spike protein, what do you think is going to happen if you introduce, introduce into their body a gene sequence that will manufacture large quantities of the thing they're already immune to? Well, they'll get hyperimmune responses it may kill them um so it's hopelessly it's a stupid thing to do it's reckless and unnecessary uh, since they're already protected by their own immunity to vaccinate people who have been infected and recovered and by now if it really is as contagious as they say uh after two years who would not have encountered this virus by now so it's over uh, it, uh, so, you know, we shouldn't be chasing people who are already immune. The second class are people who are young and healthy. 
uh, probably anybody under 60, but certainly where it comes to children, it's again, it's just completely nightmarish that you would want to inject them. There's no, there's no, they're not at any risk. And so the, the, the risk versus benefit, it, it can never be other than negative. You will harm and kill children and save none of them. And the third group, I'm very passionate about this because I've followed the research myself, pregnant women. Uh, as I've said this before, since since 1960 and thalidomide, everybody in the pharmaceutical industry, every healthcare professional, and I would say every pregnant woman knows that you don't take anything you can possibly avoid. And if you have to take something, you really want to do the research and make sure it's proven safe in pregnancy. Have they done full reproductive toxicology with these gene-based products? No. Uh, and yet you will have heard your government tell you that it's entirely safe. One, they don't know. Two, they can't know because the studies haven't been done. And three, we know from history never to do this. So the fact they're doing it, those three reasons, I think, are absolutely solid examples of why this cannot be about public health. Um, similarly, I won't spend any time on it, but the, you know, the boosters, again, it, uh, it's, in, it's completely immunologically mad just to keep injecting and injecting and injecting. If you've not got an adequate immune response after one or at most two doses, forget about it. Uh, that, that, so that's another piece of fraud whose reasons I don't really understand. Um, and then just uh, finally, a few things. Four warnings. We are not this people on this call giving evidence. We're not um, being wise after the event. Uh, Dr. Wolfgang Vodarg and I, as long ago as December 2020, before any of these products had even emergency authorization, were concerned just based on the design of them. And we wrote what turned out to be, I guess, the first full scientific critique and, and concerns. Um, there was no reply from the European Medicines Agency to this petition, but instead all that happened is that the two of us became uh, you know, attacked by you know, smear artists and censorship. So we did try, and lots of people have tried. So good members of the public, ladies and gentlemen uh, of the jury of the public, know that people like me and others on this call were very concerned even before emergency authorization and have been uh, raising to the attention of the regulators and others, including media, of these problems. And the fact they didn't do anything with that information, even to say, my God, that's, that's worrying, Let, let's discuss this, tells, tells you everything you need to know. That it wasn't about public health and they were not going to brook an alternative uh, view. Um, so I think, I think, I'm, I think I'm done. Um, yeah, I think that's probably enough to, I hope I've demonstrated to you that from someone experience in the process of biomedical R&D, although not vaccines, I'm not claiming that, but these, these kind of products would be the sort of thing I would work on novel chemical and biological entities. And I understand the, the research development and somewhat the manufacturing processes very well. Uh, and none of the normal uh, processes have been followed. And as a result, they've ended up with um, products that are rushed uh, dangerous of poor intrinsically poor and variable quality and then the uh, moves to inject the population uh, including mostly people who are not at any risk from the virus I hope will tell you even if it's with horror that this whole thing is a fraud the entire thing is a fraud uh, and we have to be incredibly vigilant as I close uh, for not only 
eventually, hopefully, prosecuting uh, the driving people in in this crime because it is a serious crime. But also, we must stay hyper vigilant for what else might be coming. Uh, I'll pause there and happy to take any questions if there are any. Just one quick question, because I don't know if you're going to be able to stay on this uh, much longer. If you look at the to at the totality of the evidence as we have been uh, as we have received it tonight, is is there any chance that the mistakes that we've seen happened by accident? No, there's absolutely no chance, and I'll say why. That here's another example: the four leading companies that have brought forward these gene-based vaccines, so Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, Moderna, and then the, the, the pairing of Pfizer and BioNTech, all four of them decided to choose the most inappropriate part of the virus uh, to make a vaccine out of. How did all four of them independently, unless, we, unless they're colluding, how did all four of them make exactly the same set of mistakes? Well, uh, no, it's not possible, Reiner. They, they would put each other right. Um, they would probably come up with several different designs. If you if you can't be first in class or, or obviously differentiated over the competition, you usually withdraw from the fight or you do something different. That's what we would. That's what I did ten times. You know. So once you learn what the others are doing, unless you think you're faster or better or safer, you, then you either quit or you do something else. Um, but no. So all four of them brought forward a badly designed product and they made the same inverted commas mistakes. And then um, just by the way, if you start a new program, the probability you'll get to market ever is a fraction of a percent. That, but that's what's called the attrition statistics as programs move from, from your mind into the laboratory, eventually into development. The probability you'll reach the market is very low. What's the probability that all four started around the same time would succeed? I would say, you know, we could demonstrate mathematically it's, it's infinitesimally tiny. And so they didn't do any of the things that they've said they've done. Uh, so there's, uh, I'm afraid there is uh, whatever collusion, conspiracy between uh, the drug companies, the regulators and the, and the people uh, allowing them to move forward. So, no, it can't possibly be a mistake. Thank you very much, Mike. I think we're very rapidly moving into RICO territory right now. Thank you very much, Mike. Okay, my great pleasure. Thank you, Anna and Um We should continue now with either Vanessa concluding her um, testimony or with uh, Professor Burkhardt. But I think Vanessa has been waiting for, for too long now. Yes. I, I, I would make this suggestion because <clears throat> there are two chapters left and uh, one of the chapter was already nicely summed up by Susharit and, uh, and Mike was about uh, biodistribution etc so I can skip this and the other one it's about why all uh, vaccination failed so far it does not fit really in the context where we are now I think so it's completely fine that we can mm -hmm. skip this and go directly to uh, Arne Burkhardt I think that's more important Thank you very much we will um, we will surely ask some questions in our discussion. Okay, Professor Burkhardt. Yes, hello to everybody. Uh, first of all, uh, 
Sucharit Bhakti introduced me very kindly, but actually I just have to say I did in the last two years what I've done for 40 years. If somebody came to me and asked, well, can you look why my relative died? Will you take a look? I said, yes. If somebody asked me, well, do I really have cancer? I said, well, yes, I will take a second look. And uh, I invited them to my microscope. And this is what I do with the results that I will present today. Everybody can look at them if he comes uh, here. So uh, to show you my uh, our study, uh, I will need some uh, slides to show. Uh, can I do this? Go ahead. Mm, where should I? There should be like a, a green area, like in the bottom. Uh, no. I don't. No, this is it, not it. No, but it, yeah. There it is. We can see it. Yes. No, this is not. Or maybe no, not. No. No, no. No. Nope, not yet. Not yet. You have to pick the right window. Well, I have... Uh, I think you have to click on your document and then go for the uh, screen share. I have Bildschirm, Whiteboard, iPhone, Microsoft. No, I mean just on the document that you would like to share. I think you have to click onto that. And yes, then but, but, but it's not... I cannot see it. Um, I will have Corvin uh, show you how to do it. Yes. Um, if I may, Arne, uh, you 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 start you you click on share screen, and then you have a number of options that is shown. No. 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 no before before that, you have to select the screen that you want on your uh, computer. So there is a, uh, there is an in between. You must you you. First, have to open the document or the picture that you want to show us, and then select share screen. Yes. Okay. That's Corbin. Maybe we just take a, a, some. Shall we ask some questions in the meantime? Maybe. Yes, Dexter, go ahead. Uh, yes. I know that uh, Professor Baptiste is up. Maybe we can attend to him. Yeah. Thank you. Wait. Yes, go ahead, Susharit. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, you go down. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'm here now. Yes, you are. Dexter, uh, I, I just wanted to add one thing um, as we're at it now. 
all mRNA vaccines of the future are going to face the same problems that we are experiencing now. We have to demand that these gene-based vaccines are never, ever allowed to be given emergency use authorization with this warp speed uh, time of preparation. I mean, this is what Mike Eden also said. You cannot, you cannot test the the, the, the uh, safety of any new vaccine within months. You cannot. Now, to end, also the other vaccines of Novavax, which are not gene-based, must never be allowed to be used under, authori- uh, under emergency use authorization because there is no reason uh, there's no reason, since there's no pandemic at the moment, secondly, because no one has ever shown the efficacy of these damn other vaccines like Novavax, and third, because their safety has, pharmacokinetics, anything you want, has also never been tested, okay? People are now trying to move to the non-gene-based vaccines, And I think it's very important to say no, no right now. Okay, so if you wanted to ask anything, Dexter, please go ahead. No, you had your hand up. That's why he said uh, you wanted to say. Oh, okay. That's what I wanted to say. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Professor Bhakti. Maybe while Professor Burkhardt is resolving the screen share issue, we can continue with Antonietta Gatti. Okay, thank you very much. I wanted to introduce myself. First, I am a physicist and a bioengineer, and I face the problem of this pandemic from an original point of view. Mm-hmm. It means that uh, I studied uh, the vaccines directly, also because I had an experience of uh, um, innovative analysis uh, under scanning electron microscope uh, coupled with uh, an energy dispersive spectroscopy. And uh, I verified the uh, chemical composition and the contamination of uh, 42 uh, standard vaccines. Of course, I applied this new technique also to uh, new uh, gene therapy products. Uh, And uh, of course, they are completely different from the standard vaccines. Uh, I don't talk to you about uh, spike protein uh, because uh, uh, you are really expert, uh, more expert than me. Um, but uh, I wanted to discuss uh, the nanotechnological content of these vaccines. Uh, sorry, these products because they are not vaccines from my point of view. And uh, um, probably you know um, they, uh, the big pharma, 
um, develop a, a, a new technique uh, of nanomedicine for uh, these uh, products. And uh, they uh, wanted to introduce mRNA inside the cell. Um, every biologist uh, knows that uh, uh, mRNA uh, is recognized by the uh, sensor of the cell membrane and they, they, they are rejected. For that, they use the trojan hole. It means that they feel and uh, liposomes, nano uh, liposomes with uh, mRNA, because uh, these uh, the nanoparticles uh, are not recognized by the sensor of the cell membrane. When uh, uh, someone uh, uh, constructed uh, the, the human bodies, uh, um, probably. Uh, uh, they didn't uh, know that uh, there were also nanoparticles, so there are no um, efficient uh, defense mechanism against nanoparticles. So they are uh, phagocytes by the cells, and when they are inside, uh, the, uh, the coating of uh, the epitic components are, are degraded and mRNA is released inside. Uh, so, uh, no big pharma didn't release any, uh, any notes, uh, any knowledge about the mechanism of degradation of these uh, liposomes. Uh, we, uh, I don't know <laughs> if uh, uh, this uh, mechanism is related to the low temperature. The, low, the initial low temperature uh, of uh, minus uh, uh, 70 degrees probably was related to, um, to the storage of liposomes. We don't know. Um, but uh, we think that there is a correlation. But the, the problem is that nobody controlled uh, the mechanism uh, and also uh, these uh, entities, these nano entities. Nobody means uh, no CDC, no um, FDA, no EMA, no, no other national organizations. So there is no quality control on these uh, uh, products. And uh, my investigations have revealed that inside uh, the, uh, these products are present also something else. Something else means uh, um, strange nano entities uh, that uh, probably uh, are uh, are due to nanotechnological process, uh, very, uh, very, very strange. And uh, these uh, nano entities are out of the mission of uh, the, uh, the vaccines. Um, there, there are uh, aggregate of nanoparticles of steel. And we don't know 
uh, also uh, why. Um, surely they are products of nanotechnologies. So in intentionally added to this product, not to all the uh, products, uh, but uh, uh, only I think that they are only in some batches and uh, uh, probably inside uh, some uh, safes of uh, uh, Pfizer and so on, there is a list of uh, the uh, right batches and the wrong batches of, of vaccines. Uh, if you want, uh, I can show you some uh, images um, so you can understand uh, better uh, what is uh, the uh, uh, wait a minute? Wait, wait, wait a minute that I I find uh, a oh sorry. Um, and uh, these uh, entities are um, uh, are uh, intentionally uh, added. Uh, sorry. Do you see that? Not yet, Antonia. No, not yet. Uh, wait a minute that uh, I try again. I have the, I have the um, same problem. Now, do something you see is, that? Something is coming up, yes. Uh, okay. Wait a minute. That, uh, do you see something? Yes, we can see it. We can see the picture. Perfect. These are white, white um, particles uh, are uh, not exactly uh, belonging to the vaccine, but they belong, they are metallic debris inserted in the needle of, of, uh, uh, of uh, the syringe. And they are um, the wear debris of the cold working of the needle. But when they inject the, the liquid, the vaccine, also these wear debris are injected in the body. Do you understand this problem? Um, you see uh, there, uh, yes, uh, you see uh, here uh, some uh, white debris, uh, very, very atomically dense. And in this case, uh, we, um, this uh, debris is composed of chromium. There is chromium side. Uh, probably uh, these other soft uh, entities are the an agglomeration of uh, liposomes or something else, for, for instance, uh, graphene, for instance. But uh, that it is very interesting because uh, that it is a micrometer and uh, it is a nanotechnological product. Uh, and you see very well from uh, the holes, uh, the periodic holes uh, that are created uh, in this uh, uh, microneedle. And uh, mm, probably uh, this uh, needle is uh, filled with uh, a product. And, and after this product is released 
uh, when the vaccine is injected in the body. But uh, I wanted to uh, skip to these, uh, to these uh, entities. Uh, they, they are a mixture of organic material with nanoparticles of uh, silica, aluminum silicate, and uh, uh, all these uh, particles are thrombogenic. They are non-biocompatible. So they can scratch uh, the internal blood, uh, blood vessels, uh, not only, but they can trigger uh, the coagulative cascade. So uh, some effect, side effects that uh, we see uh, probably can uh, have uh, this particle uh, as a tr tr triggering uh, agent. In this case, uh, a, a spheres of uh, seven micron of uh, silica. I don't know what, what is uh, the meaning of why it is inside. And there are uh, other uh, small particles of stainless steel. Stainless steel is iron, chromium, uh, and so on. But uh, I wanted to uh, show you uh, other small particles that it is very interesting because uh, that is AstraZeneca. And if you uh, have a magnification of these small entities, you see, you see an ellipse full of nanoparticles. And uh, these nanoparticles are metallic composed of iron, chromium, uh, copper, nickel, uh, tin, uh, but uh, it, it, is a, uh, it is a nanotechnological product, but we don't know what, what is the mission of, of this entity inside uh, a vaccine. That it is not biocompatible. Uh, I found also uh, some particles of silver, but that it is uh, uh, really interesting, that it is moderna. Uh, these uh, strange entities of 30 micron is uh, uh, full of holes. Probably these holes could be filled with something. They are inside the, the vaccine. And uh, uh, they are added to the vaccine with, with uh, a special uh, aim, but we don't know. This uh, small uh, particle is composed of a silicon, lead, cadmium, selenide. Cadmium, selenide are nanoparticles, very uh, interesting. They are products of nanotechnologies. They are uh, thrombogenic, uh, but uh, we don't know what is uh, the, uh, the scope of this further uh, material inside the product. And other particles composed of stainless steel, and that it is an organic, inorganic compound. It means that probably um, liposome RNA glued 
together these uh, metallic uh, particles. Probably uh, you you saw that uh, many patients uh, uh, had uh, some uh, magnetic effect uh, in uh, the uh, point of injection. These uh, uh, these entities can match these uh, these uh, um, effect. And uh, if uh, there are important electromagnetic field, uh, these particles can react inside in an electromagnetic field. Uh, another uh, strange particle of aluminum, uh, silicon in Jensen, aluminum titanium, uh, um, I found many different uh, things uh, in, inside, um, and uh, um, probably there is a problem of quality control, not uh, performed by uh, the, uh, the manufacturer, but also by the, by the uh, control organizations because uh, <laughs> they are uh, clearly visible under a, a, a scanning electron microscope. So I think that, uh, uh, wait, uh, I wanted to interrupt uh, the condivision. Yes, because I, I want to talk with you, uh, especially with uh, Michael Yadon, uh, because uh, I see, I saw a contamination also in uh, the uh, old vaccines. But uh, in the new ones, uh, there are nanotechnological uh, compounds, particles inside, and uh, the effect in the human body uh, is unknown. I studied uh, biomaterials, biocompatibility of materials. Uh, uh, for many years. So uh, I have an, uh, an experience in that, but it is the first time that I see nanotechnological products uh, inside a, a, a fluid. Um, I uh, coordinated a, um, a research project of the European Commission um, of nanotoxicity. And uh, I know very well uh, what is the effect of nanoparticles inside the cell. And I have beautiful uh, photos, images, of a direct nanobiointeraction of these nanoparticles with DNA also, mitochondria, organelles, but also DNA. So from my point of view, um, these uh, new products are, are um, are dangerous, very dangerous, uh, and uh, and uh, I I don't see uh, the possibility uh, for the body to counteract uh, against uh, this uh, stimuli. Thank you very much. Um, we will save our questions uh, for the discussion, uh, but uh, Antonietta, do you have any idea if? these nanoparticles could have been included in the vials by accident, or do you think? 
In, uh, in the last vaccines, I am sure that uh, the, there was uh, a contamination during uh, the industrial process uh -huh. to develop uh, vaccines. I, I think that uh, uh, silver nanoparticles, uh, pro probably uh, they are uh, added uh, for mistake uh, because there was a contamination mm -hmm. inside uh, uh, the um, the process uh, of synthesis uh, with, with other activities and so on. But but you saw two or three uh, nano entities and uh, they are uh, nanotechnologically developed and they are intentionally added. That it is my personal opinion, of course. Uh, but uh, you know <laughs> that uh, um, many uh, many other scientists uh, de declare that uh, probably there is a, a, a contamination with uh, external uh, um, electromagnetic fields, and uh, um, I think that probably. These entities can be the trade union with external electromagnetic field. And when they are inside, they can generate magnetic field, small magnetic field that can interact in a new way in, uh, inside the, the body. And re recently, uh, I published an article about uh, the um, sudden infant death syndrome. And uh, um, I worked with, with other uh, collaborators, uh, neurologists, and uh, uh, analyzing the brain of these babies, so we discovered that inside uh, there are uh, contamination <laughs> particles, uh, also, par also particles of aluminum or aluminum phosphate, and uh, probably <laughs> some uh, of uh, the uh, scientists uh, present know, knows, know, know what, that, what it means. Mm -hmm. So that uh, um, part of uh, the uh, excipients of uh, the um, standard vaccines uh, were translocated from the mother to the fetus uh, and uh, inside the fetus uh, to, to also uh, to, to the brain. So th th that uh, it, is, uh, it is a novelty mm -hmm. because uh, uh, we say that uh, uh, there is uh, a risk to give uh, drugs uh, to, to the mother during the pregnancy. Uh, but now, now it, it is normal to vaccinate the, uh, the ladies, uh, the pregnant ladies. Mm -hmm. it, it is wrong because if inside, uh, you know, if inside, inside there are some uh, inorganic. Uh, Mm, nanoparticles, nano entities, nano entities, and they can be translocated to the fetus. 
and that they can be disseminated inside all the organs of the fetus. Including the brain. So, uh, also the brain, of course, but I think that also they can reach the liver, the kidneys, and so on. Uh, also because they are trans transported uh, by uh, the blood circulation. Not only, but these uh, um, the particles I showed you, they can interact with uh, the proteins of uh, the blood. They can activate the coagulative cascade, but they also can create a organic, inorganic compound not more bioreservable. Mm -hmm. that, uh, that it is a problem, also because they cannot trigger the immune system. So um, these simple images suggest that a new uh, mechanism can be uh, generated, uh, some pathological mechanism can be generated in the body due to the presence of these entities. Thank you, Antonietta. Let us quickly see if uh, Professor Burkhardt is ready to uh, join us again. Hello, Professor Burkhardt. I, I hope uh, I can men, uh, get uh, my pictures now. Let me see. You can see now? Not yet. It's coming up. Now we can see several images. You probably, and yes. Now? now we can see the first one, autopsy and histology study on vaccination. Well, yes. This first slide gives you an overview of what we have been doing in the last uh, Year. So it was about uh, one year ago that um, uh, relatives approached me uh, and asked, uh, and they had the suspicion that their relatives had not died of natural causes, but of uh, sequences of this uh, vaccination. So at that time, I wrote to the National uh, Pathology uh, Associations, and I suggested that uh, uh, a nationwide study should be uh, started to see uh, the consequences uh, of uh, deaths occurring in the uh, time uh, associated with uh, uh, vaccination. And, uh, well, I didn't get any answer at that time, so uh, I said, well, if nobody else would do it, I will do it. And uh, through the months uh, following, uh, there have been many uh, uh, there have been pathologists, physicians, biologists uh, uh, turning to me, and they ask, "Well, we we see uh, similar cases. We have the same uh, 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 observations, and so uh, we actually are now eight pathologists and medicals." Uh, and one physicist all, also joined us just recently. So 
Oh, the material is uh, 30 autopsies and four biopsies. Actually, today, uh, four more cases arrived, so I have 35 cases now. And it, it's very time-consuming to uh, uh, study these cases. So uh, I will practically, uh, most of the data that I will give are uh, linked to 15 initial cases that were uh, analyzed by routine methods and uh, uh, three with advanced methods. So uh, you see here uh, the uh, people that died, uh, seven male, eight females, seven days to six months after the, the last injection, and uh, the, the age range was 28 to 95 years. And you see these were the uh, usual uh, vaccinations that are used in Germany, uh, mostly Pfizer and Moderna. So uh, uh, we were asked to uh, uh, get it to uh, do a second opinion. These were autopsies that were carried out elsewhere. Uh, some in pathology institutes, some in forensic medicine. And uh, at the macroscopic examination of the organs did not result in any uh, suspicion that this was, the death was uh, uh, connected with uh, vaccination. All the cases in the forensic medicine were not even uh, examined by histopathology. And uh, only uh, suspicion was uh, arisen when uh, the relatives insisted on uh, a second opinion. And our second opinion uh, had the, uh, showed that there are certain histological characteristics that are seen in most of the cases. I will show these characteristics in the in the following slides but our uh, 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 result was that in five cases there was a very likely uh, association with the death process uh, seven likely two possible and in one case we did not uh, exclude uh, find any provable cause that uh, connection with the vaccination. So very important is the fact that uh, most of the patients that we uh, examined were not uh, treated for a long time in the hospital. This rules out uh, all seropotic uh, changes in the organs. For example, if a patient has been uh, uh, subdued to uh, artificial respiration, uh, the changes in the uh, lungs are uh, secondary and you cannot see what the vaccination did and what has uh, the respiration done. So this is very important because most of the uh, autopsies are done in hospitals and most of these patients that are uh, autopsies, uh, autopsied in the uh, hospitals have been treated for a long time in the hospital. But our collective really was mostly non-treated and they collapsed at home, in the street, in the car, at work, and in the retirement home. So actually, uh, we found uh, 
lesions in most organs. And uh, at the first place, uh, the blood vessels were uh, uh, damaged. the small vessels, the endothelium, the innermost layer, and the vessel wall. Then in the vessel walls, in the vessels, we found some unidentified intravascular material, which I will talk later about. Then spleen and lymph nodes, the lymphatic organs showed very characteristic changes, and heart, lung, brain. Uh, also had, uh, in most cases, inflammatory changes. And finally, we found uh, what we call lymphocyte amok in uh, most organs outside of the lympho- uh, lymphatic organs. And uh, uh, these were very much uh, uh, re- reminiscent of autoimmune phenomena in, uh, observed in autoimmune diseases. So uh, what were our methods used? Uh, Routine histological preparation, conventional stains, and uh, uh, immunohistochemistry. And especially immunohistochemistry is the second step that we are right now uh, in. We use the standard markers of uh, of, uh, inflammatory cells and in some cases, uh, the, we were able to uh, show the spike protein in these uh, uh, tissue. So to anybody who is not acquainted with, uh, with uh, microscopy and uh, the way uh, organs look under the microscope, this is a normal liver, and you can see there are uh, these dark uh, spots that are the nuclei, and then there's the uh, cytoplasm, which has a a little bit granular appearance. Uh, Mostly these are mitochondria. So we are able to see the nucleus and the cytoplasm and also some changes in the cytoplasm. And uh, one of the most uh, impressive change was uh, a change in the uh, lining of the small vessels and uh, capillaries and you can see uh, the normal in the normal uh, vessels they are lined by a very thin layer of endothelial cells you can only see these uh, spindle cells uh, spindle cell uh, spindle uh, shaped uh, cell nuclei but they are firmly attached to the wall of the vessel. And in the vaccinated uh, patients, we saw this phenomenon. It's uh, the endothelial cells have swollen uh, nuclei. They they are detached from uh, from the wall and they are intermixed with with, uh, erythrocytes. So, uh, now and then you see this phenomenon also caused by auto, auto, autolysis, which is uh, the uh, decay after uh, death. But uh, we definitely could uh, prove that these uh, small vessels are actually destroyed by uh, lymphocytic uh, inflammatory infiltrates. You still see the uh, elongated, swollen, uh, spindle-shaped nuclei, 
and uh, the whole area is infiltrated and they are really uh, uh, destructed. Now, uh, of course, uh, we were thinking about how uh, could this be it. We were uh, interested in showing uh, the, uh, if, if the spike protein could be uh, uh, shown in these uh, damaged cells. And just for those who are not uh, familiar with uh, immunohistochemistry, so you can see the uh, sequence here and finally, we use uh, multiple antibodies and the last one has some uh, coloration, some color on it. And so we have brown pigment and you see here a positive uh, reaction in a cell of a salt culture. And actually before we employed this method on uh, our histological slides of the uh, autopsy persons, we did studies in cell cultures, and uh, these are cell cultures uh, with negative, as negative controls, and we have, here we have transfection with the uh, vaccine, and this is a larger magnification, and you can see there's a strong positive reaction here. And now we applied it to the uh, tissue that uh, we were seeing and which, where we saw damage to the uh, vessels. And uh, on the right side, you can see these small capillaries and there's a definite and very specific staining of these cells. And also in the uh, smaller arterial uh, walls, you can see that the inner part, the inner layer of the uh, artery is definitely stained. Also, you can see here inside some desquamated cells. And uh, we observed these uh, damages to uh, not only in the small vessels, but also in uh, the large vessel, vessels, especially in the aorta, and we actually we have two cases now who died of a ruptured aorta. And uh, here you can see one of the specimens. Here you can see the inside on the right side, the inside uh, where the blood flows, and uh, the wall of the uh, aorta is uh, composed of a regular. Uh, lining of in, uh, uh, alternating smooth muscle cells and elastic fibers. And you can see already here in the wall, there are some areas where the texture is uh, uh, irregular and there are some small points which are lymphocytes and more impressive, even the inflammatory reaction on the uh, uh, outside of the uh, uh, aorta proper. So this, these are the uh, so-called vasa vasorum, the vessels of the, uh, of the uh, vessel. And uh, to show it in a larger magnification, you can see these defects in the arterial wall of the aorta, and you can see there's a, an inflammatory reaction Again, a proof that this is an intravital uh, damage to the uh, wall of the aorta. And uh, we saw the same thing in uh, uh, larger and smaller arteries. And again, we 
ask ourselves, could this be a toxic effect of uh, the spike protein? Similar changes are known after uh, one uh, in, in uh, some uh, genetic defects, but also in some poisonings, like uh, what they call laturism, that is a poison that is in some uh, kichererbsen, I don't know the uh, German word, uh, the English word, but it's uh, uh, very rare and it leads to a dissection and disruption of aorta. So we do that, that this could uh, happen in poisoning. And you can see here, we did a, a demonstration of the spike protein and you can see these very clear marking of the nuclei of these myofibroblasts which uh, line the, the aorta and uh, also in the vicinity of the basa vasorum of the smaller uh, vessels in the uh, out, outer uh, layer of the aorta are definitely positive reacting. So uh, how often did we see this? Uh, first of all, the uh, damage of the small vessels, the endotelitis, as it, some people call it, the swelling, desquamation, and lymph lymphocytic infiltration we saw in 11 cases, vasculitis and perivasculitis of larger vessels in 10 cases, focal vessel wall necrosis and inflammatory reaction, as I have shown in six cases, and inflammation accompanied by thrombosis in two cases, and I may add a rupture of the aorta in two cases. So we come to um, another uh, to other organs. Uh, we come to the liver and the spleen. You can see these uh, two uh, tissue specimens were in one uh, paraffin block, and they were sectioned and stained in the same uh, matter, and also they were fixed and embedded in the same way. And uh, here you can see the liver, and the liver itself is largely negative. So, uh, but if you look closely, you may see some small vessels in there which are positive, and the spleen shows a completely different picture. The spleen itself has a, a diffuse a positive staining, but uh, even at this magnification, you can see that the vessels, these uh, round uh, 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 um, areas here are definitely strongly positive. So uh, first of all, I will show you the, the liver, and you can see that the liver cells are negative. Uh, there's a, there's a, a slight uh, non-specific uh, reaction, but this, this uh, cannot be ruled positive. And you can see that the endothelial cells in the liver are strongly positive. And uh, in the spleen, we saw, uh, as we all have already seen in the uh, in this low magnification, we saw a very diff very diffuse and specific uh, staining of the cells, and we found an, a phenomenon which is known from some uh, autoimmune diseases, which is called this onion skin inflammation of the central arteries of the spleen. And this is, for example, seen in lupus erythematodes. And also, uh, 
changes that as far as we know and uh, i think about 50 pathologists have seen looked at it by now it's a focal destruction of follicular arteries with prolapse of lymphatic uh, follicular tissue and here you can see these are the spots where you can we found changes and here this is the area that is important that's the uh, uh, white pulp of the uh, spleen and its uh, follicle with a central follicular artery. And uh, this is a phenomenon that I refer to. It is uh, the onion uh, skin uh, uh, re uh, reaction or phenomenon that is that means that the wall of these uh, this small uh, uh, artery is. Uh, uh, is, 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 uh, has changed and is uh, disorganized. And finally, also in these uh, arteries that show these, this phenomenon, we definitely could demonstrate a strong positive reaction for the spike protein. And this is a phenomenon that I refer to that, uh, as far as I know, has never been described. This is a small central artery of the uh, spleen. And you can see there's, this is a wall. And here there's a def defect. And uh, the uh, lymphatic tissue, which is proliferating and has some uh, uh, pressure, exerts some pressure, is, uh, pro is, uh, has a prolapse into this artery. And uh, the, then the other lymphatic organs show uh, 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 activation. You see the lymph nodes may be, in some cases, very much enlarged. And uh, on the other hand, we saw uh, what is an uh, infarct of the central lymph nodes in some cases. This is a normal one, just to show you the uh, follicles. And uh, this is a phenomenon uh, re, uh, described by some Japanese authors and uh, may be uh, associated with uh, uh, vessel changes, with changes of the small arteries or capillaries. And now we come to the uh, other organ uh, lesions. Uh, by now it is internationally uh, accepted that uh, Vaccination may uh, cause uh, myocarditis and inflammation of the heart muscle, and you can see a normal uh, specimen. And here you can see the lymphocytes, these small dark dots that are infiltrating, and uh, they are not only infiltrating, but in some cases they lead to uh, necrosis of the uh, muscle cells of the heart, and uh, this is uh, very important to differentiate this from uh, uh, banal uh, infarction of the uh, uh, heart tissue, because in a infarction, in a normal infarction, you don't see you don't see many lymphocytes, but predominantly uh, granulocytes. So we come to the lung. Uh, on the right side, again, a lung with normal uh, alveoli, uh, which are filled with, uh, with air, and there are some uh, lymphocytes inside and some macrophages, 
but here in after vaccination and not after uh, artificial respiration, you see this uh, lung tissue has collapsed and there are dense lymphocytic infiltrations. And uh, these are T lymphocytes, as we could show by immunohistochemistry. And uh, now we come to changes in the uh, uh, brain. And, uh, and uh, just uh, for those who are not familiar, we have uh, the skin and the skull, and we have the dense connective tissue here, the dura mater, and this uh, uh, loose uh, connective tissue in the arachnoidea with some very delicate uh, uh, vessels, blood vessels, and uh, then of course we have the brain tissue. And we found changes in all three of these locations. Uh, and these are the main findings, transfection associated encephalitis, lymphocytic infiltration and focal destru destruction of intracerebral and arachnoidal blood vessels, subarachnoid bleeding without aneurysma, as you may know, aneurysma of the uh, uh, vessels uh, of the brain are the most common cause of uh, rupture. Then we have focal lymphocytic infiltration in the duromata, and finally, in one case, necrosis of the hypophysic, partial necrosis of the hypophysial gland. And here you can see the lymphocytic infiltration in the dura mater, which is the, the, the heart uh, 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 membrane that covers the brain and the skull. And you can see in this 26-year-old uh, uh, male which, who died of, uh, uh, after this, the vaccination, you find this infiltration. And uh, in the same case, we also found lymphocytic uh, infiltration in the small vessels of the uh, uh, brain uh, tissue itself. And uh, uh, so uh, uh, coming to an end with the uh, autopsy cases, I will show you one additional case with a necrotizing encephalitis, 76-year-old man with a necrotizing encephalitis, vasculitis of the aorta and coronary artery, as I have shown, lymphocytic myocarditis. And in this case, here you can see the changes of the brain tissue. There's a, ne there's a necrosis and uh, there is uh, a granulocytic and lymphocytic inflammatory infiltration. And in this case, also, we could uh, demonstrate the spike protein mainly in the, uh, in the uh, vessel walls, as you can see here, and, but also in the uh, 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 neural cells itself, as you can see here. This is a typical granular reaction. And... Uh, this is a demonstration of one recent case that we examined. We come to the last larger entity that we observed, that is what we call the lymphocytic amok, accumulation of lymphocytes, some call it lymphocytosis in non-lymphatic organs, inflammation and tissue destruction predominantly caused by lymphocytes, as we have seen, for example, in the myocardium, 
but uh, 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 we see it also in other organs, practically in all tissues. It could uh, happen, and this uh, reminds very much of uh, changes that we in, uh, observe in autoimmune diseases. And this is just uh, uh, the frequency that we have observed this. Actually, these uh, figures are, uh, uh, have to be interpreted because we only had uh, salivary gland in two of the cases, autopsies in both cases showed uh, salivary gland uh, 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 inflammation in the sense of in the sense of an autoimmune disease. And the thyroid glands also, we only have two cases and both had uh, infiltrations like in Hashimoto thyroiditis. Order I have shown you skin, I will show you later liver, kidney, testis, and gruamata I already showed you. Now, this is just uh, one example here. You can see the lymph node, and you can see this is like a small lymph node right in the middle of the lung. It has uh, 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 reaction centers here, and uh, this is very, very, very rare that you observe this. And this is the thyroid glands, and you can see these dark areas are infiltration, small lymphocytic infiltrations, again with germinal centers and activation uh, like small lymph, uh, lymph nodes. Now we come to another problem. I mentioned that we observed strange material uh, in the vessels of and uh, tissues of uh, uh, by now five cases, and this is one example we found in uh, the vessel of the uh, uh, spleen. Uh, first, we thought this were uh, just fat cells, but they have an inner structure. Then we thought it might be a contrast material, but the patient died at home and never was in the hospital in the last year. So actually, we do not know. We showed it to about 50 pathologists and nobody knows what this material is. We will make further investigations. And our suspicion is that this is uh, uh, material from, from the injected uh, vaccine material. Uh, the uh, nano uh, lipid particles might coalesce when they warm up in the body and they might circulate and finally accumulate in the vessels. And uh, this is in a similar uh, finding in the fat tissue in one case. And also here we have this strange intracellular uh, structures that uh, nobody knows what it is. So we just call it unidentified. And in one case that is uh, long, has a longer history after uh, vaccination, we found these uh, strange materials and some uh, tissue re reaction and uh, uh, fibrosis. So I will just uh, uh, show you one final uh, autopsy case. A case of a 40-year-old man which uh, was supposed to have died of a natural cause because there was definitely 
uh, 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 myocardial infarct that uh, he had died of, uh, but uh, and he had a vaccination, and uh, the autopsy just by the macroscopic aspect uh, seemed to be to assert the uh, uh, the fact that he was he died of a of a heart a heart attack of a uh, heart. Uh, 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 infarction, and he did actually he did die of a, a heart uh, uh, infarct, but uh, and he had pre-existing arteriosclerosis. But there was in addition the lymphocytic myocarditis that I had shown you before, and we found, and this is a cross section of the uh, coronary artery. Here you see the uh, thrombus. This is a thrombus that caused the myocardial infection and caused the death. But in addition, you find arteriosclerotic changes. And then again, what I showed you in the beginning, there are areas in the deeper layer of the vessel here where you can see there's some uh, uh, disturbance of the structure and there's infiltration by lymphocytes and the lymphocytic infiltration also is in the vicinity uh, around the uh, vessel. And here you can see these also in the fatty tissue and here lymphocytic infiltration. Now, this is very unusual and I think I, I have never seen it in a vessel. So, the uh, logical uh, uh, consequence is this man died of a uh, of a inflammation of the and uh, disturbance of the coronary artery, which caused uh, thrombosis, and the thrombosis caused caused the heart. In fact, and actually, he did not die of natural causes, but he died of the consequences of the uh, vaccination, and. Uh, Finally, some uh, exa uh, examples of uh, surgical bioptic specimens, appendectomy, bronchial biopsy, and skin lesion. Here you can see uh, an observation of uh, uh, our uh, of uh, of the uh, other pathologists that I work together with. They found that the uh, specimens of appendectomy often did not show much uh, inflammation in the inside of the appendix, but uh, marked uh, inflammation in the vicinity in the, uh, of the appendix. And uh, you can see it here. This is the fat tissue around the appendix. And uh, again, they did, uh, we did uh, uh, the demonstration of uh, the spike protein and actually, it was uh, very clearly expressed by the endothelial cells around the appendix. And uh, here, a uh, uh, 26-year-old man after vaccination, uh, nine months after vaccination, and he had still uh, uh, difficulties with breathing, a dyspnea, and so they did a bronchioscopy in uh, nine months after the vaccination, and uh, the uh, uh, bronchioscopic picture showed a normal mucosa, mucosal surface, no secretion. 
But in our histology, we had marked inflation of the mucosa with eosinophilia. And uh, we could again demonstrate and uh, demonstrate uh, uh, the spike protein. Now, first of all, who's up to those who are not familiar, inside the epithelium, there are often these elongated cells, which are not epithelial, uh, and uh, we call them dendritic cells. They uh, are uh, functional in immune uh, detection and immunosurveillance. And uh, here you can see that these dendritic cells within the uh, bronchial epithelia are strongly marked with a, a spike protein, while the uh, uh, epithelial, uh, endothelial cells of the small vessels are only very uh, uh, mildly marked. And finally, a skin biopsy. Here you can see there are some, uh, uh, well, what we might call uh, uh, granulomatous reaction in uh, under the skin. And uh, th this is under further investigation. We did not do uh, the spike protein in these cases. So when we did these uh, examinations, uh, all cases were seen by two pathologists and other pathologists also have seen all uh, the uh, uh, problematic uh, changes. And again and again, we were asking ourselves, well, are we chasing a phantom? Is this really true? We looked at each other and said, well, do you see this uh, too? Do you see this phenomenon? Do you see that this uh, artery has an onion skin phenomenon? And, uh, well, we came to the conclusion, no, we are not chasing a phantom. Further studies are necessary and provocative. Thank you very much. Just one quick question, Professor Burkhardt. Um, when you saw the expression of the spike protein in the organs and the cells, can you exclude that it, exclude the possibility that it entered the body in any other way than through the vaccinations, the inoculations? Uh, well, uh, is there any possibility that there's another well, way? Uh, well, some people uh, had the uh, um, idea that these people might have had uh, uh, what you call uh, a, a real uh, infection by uh, by the uh, coronavirus. But then, first of all, most of these people died suddenly. They just collapsed. Mm -hmm. And I've never heard of any corona infection where people don't have a longer history of respiratory uh, problems and so on and so on. But uh, uh, we are right now uh, doing uh, uh, examinations of the uh, nuclear capsid, and uh, we will very soon have the results. Thank you very much. Um, my colleagues, before we enter the discussion and ask more questions, we should listen to uh, our final expert on this topic, uh, Professor Bergholz, if that is okay. Professor Bergholz. Now I guess you can hear me. Yes. And I have a presentation. Now, listening 
uh, it turned out that what I have prepared in a way seems to be maybe a good summary of what we've heard today. So let's have a look. So I have to go to share screen first. There we go. So how much time do I have? Um, we are under a little bit of time pressure. <laughs> yes, as usual. So I'll, so uh, now uh, I'm switching to full uh, presentation mode now, if my computer does that. And I hope that works. Do you see the full presentation now? Yes. Good. So um, I'm not a medical person. How come that I am in this uh, group of people? Well, my claim to fame in this group is that I've practiced quality and risk management for something like 20 years, if not longer. And I've also taught it at university. So I've also researched on it and I have about 17 years of industry experience in production. So what Mike said about scaling up was right up my street and I'll come back to that later. I'll skip over that overview. Now, uh, the topic is quality perspective. Now, why is this relevant? Uh, I had a close look at the leaked uh, Pfizer contract and somewhere it said uh, that the quality of the product and tests should uh, constantly be tested and good manufacturing practice should be done. So far, so good. Nothing unusual. Now, the real uh, beauty comes now. What does it say? Indemnification. That is, if there is any problem, normally the manufacturers are free from all damage claims. But this will not be available in case of a material breach, a significant breach of good manufacturing process uh, practice. So, uh, if we find substantial non-conformities relative to ISO 9001, which is kind of the gold standard of how you do a quality management system, uh, then it will mean that indemnification is void, which I think is uh, something that we all like to see. So that is a kind of busy slide. Uh, so that is non-conformities in the development process. Uh, our Canadian expert already said there were false expectation raised that it can uh, do any, uh, that it can protect you. This I haven't even listed that. Uh, but what she also said, known risks from animal experience on previous attempts to bring those uh, so-called vaccinations to market, they had all been ignored and I would say circumvented. Uh, Pfizer gave a statement in October 2020 that they had not done animal experiments. And also the telescoping of phases, which I would have called quality gates in my language, uh, if you do that in parallel, you have an undue increase in risk. I don't think that needs any further explanation. Then our 
Canadian friend already mentioned many of those things that Peter Doshi, the co-editor of the British Medical Journal, listed as clear deficiencies, deficiencies in that study. Uh, uh, and so I, w yeah, she, I think even called it fraudulent. Okay, and then what is, I think, ridiculous, premature unblinding and vaccination of large parts of the control group. Then the questionable endpoint was mentioned and that the relative risk reduction is absolutely irrelevant and yet we are talking about 1%. Uh, so the development process is seriously flawed. And that is the first serious non-conformity, which simply cannot be uh, excused by urgency. Okay. Uh, then the papers that were presented to the European Medic Uh, medicine so, uh, agency in December 2020 were subject uh, or the uh, approval, conditional approval was subject to several obligations I call them and as Mike pointed out most of those obligations were related to either peer, poor process or poor materials control most of which those obligations which should have been uh, dealt with by June 2020 are not even fulfilled by this time. Mm -hmm. And normally the only uh, action would have been stop the whole thing until the manufacturers have done their job. Not so here. Okay, then uh, Mike also pointed that out, and I'm Uh, if you go from such a small quantity that you use for those 40 or 50,000 uh, portions or doses for the studies, if you go to manufacturing billions, you have two problems. You cannot but use lower grade chemicals and you have to use large scale equipment. And so in a way, I think Mike said so, and I would agree, you would have to start from scratch again because what you get out of this product is different, definitely different. The only question is how much from the original product. So the conclusion number three is we, from this, it seems relatively unlikely that we will have stable mass production. And the proof is here. What do we see here? We see a sequence in this case of 175 uh, adverse effect reports for 175 lots. I've not put the lot numbers themselves, but they were in alphabetical or alphanumerical order. Uh, so this, for all we know, was the time sequence that they were made. And this is, by the way, statistical process control, how to treat it. Uh, anything that goes, oops, sorry, uh, that goes above the above dotted line is out of control. The process should be stopped immediately. And what we can also see, even in between, we have quiet periods and it starts to wobble a little bit. And, but that is, one of the better periods. So it's getting worse. Here we have 
a quiet period and then it starts to wobble again. And the interesting thing, this batch, which I've annotated here, is the second batch that the 15-year-old girl, Cheyenne Brown, was inoculated or vaccinated with. And from what I remember, she died about three weeks or four weeks later. And I've checked that also for the first injection. And again, her injection was not one of the worst. These would have been the worst. Uh, but again, it was in one of those bumpy ride periods rather than those periods. And what I suspect is if we would follow up all the people that would be uh, in, uh, vaccinated by these, uh, then we would find my prediction a lot more dead people. Because uh, the number of cases, by the way, that, that have been reported correlates rather well with the number of deaths and the number of um, <clears throat> seriously injured. So even worse, what we see here are those super toxic batches that Mike has referred to. What we can see here, I'll go back uh, in a minute. We see here the maximum scale is 30. And here we are at 3,000. Those isolated groups of batches are absolutely any, out, out of any uh, thing that can happen statistically. There, that, there was something done on purpose. So I think here we have clear evidence there was a intentional thing being done. And what I learned from the website, uh, how bad is my batch? Uh, they have analyzed that those batches, and that's also important to know, uh, were sent to all 50 states of the United States, whereas those harmless batches went to anything between two and 12, as if I remember. So how did the, uh, how did the manufacturers know that they had to distribute those to 50 states in order to dilute it down. They knew it. And may, so there was intention at least to send them out. Now, efficacy. Already in July 2021, I had found evidence from the Israel data that the efficacy had completely waned by then. And of course, then they started the booster and the force injection. And of course, the result was things got worse and worse. So uh, this is a very recent thing from England. And I would like to really show this in person to our uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who is advocating obligatory injections. Red is per 100,000 people the vaccinated people that were tested positive per 100,000 in January. And blue is the unvaccinated. So I think it's very clear. Uh, if you want to get the risk to be at least positively tested, most likely then also infected after what we've heard, how our immune system is run down. If you want to increase the risk, get vaccinated. So in other words, we do have uh, by now, the pandemic 
of the vaccinated. No doubt in my opinion. And this should be given to any of the members of parliament who vote in favor of vaccination. And then we know they have malintent. And coming back to adverse events, in uh, we have the problem with the uh, adverse event reporting that uh, there is always this gross underreporting. Therefore, I have compared, that is for Germany alone, the number of deaths per year for those approximately 70 million vaccinations per year uh, from the year 2000 to 2019. We are talking about 20 deaths. Those COVID-19 injections have 2,255 deaths. Uh, okay, you could say it's 50 times more deaths per injection or 100 times deaths per injected person, assuming two injections. I mean, how can you go over this and ignore this? I've it, Time and again, the experience when I talk to friends and acquaintances who believe the story, the narrative, and I tell them, this, these are the official data. Why don't we see that on the mainstream media? Sheer amazement. I leave them at that, because maybe that's the first seed that they start to think about what is going on. So we have a dramatic increase in the death rate. It also goes for the other things, and we find similar things for other countries. So coming back to what Antonia Gatti told us, I listed what has been found by mostly light mic microscopy. Frequently, it has been found uh, that there was graphene oxide strips. They looked like it. And in one case, I know of a micro Raman spectrometry, exactly on one of those strips, there is no doubt that that was graphene, uh, graphene oxide. No doubt at all. It's a very characteristic finger up, uh, fingerprint. Now then we have metallic objects, which may be debris from the production equipment. And uh, in a very few cases, there have been reported objects which resemble fragments of microchips. I mean, I have a lot of experience since I worked in the chip industry. When you want to analyze a chip, you put that into suitable liquids and it will disintegrate. And you get fragments like that. And this looks absolutely identical to what you would expect if you disintegrate a microchip. It's unfortunate that there is no scale bar. Then I could have even told you what kind of, uh, what's the minimum feature size is. It's probably not, by far not the latest technology. So where does that stuff come from? Now, uh, the most probable uh, reason for me is not that it has been put there intentionally, but I suspect uh, that this was possibly by censorships that are in the production equipment in which over time also can disintegrate and nobody cares. And the filtering also seems to be very substandard if all these objects can be found unless that stuff is uh, added intentionally. So I'm almost done. So an absolute serious nonconformity. 
three types of undeclared solid objects in the injection liquid. That is, there's no way. And of course, the pathology results, I don't think I need to say anything about that now. Uh, what I would like to emphasize, uh, what I think Mike mentioned that or someone else, there is no control of how much of the poisonous spike protein, where and for how long that is produced. So it's what happens in our body is absolutely out of control. So every organ and every bodily function can be affected. So <laughs> what kind of uh, treatment is that? So my conclusion is, uh, and I would love to support uh, the jury in substantiating that, there are so many serious concerns and quality non-conformities that according to elementary quality assurance principles, all vaccinations must be halted immediately. What's also important, I mean, we did the job of the Paul Ehrlich Institute, so they must be forced to get active. If they don't, then they're, yeah, they'll have to answer for that in court someday, I think. So, and in contract terms regarding quality co controls, uh, almost everything has been violated, and thus, in my opinion, indemnification is void. That's it. Actually, uh, the conclusion that you come to in that final aspect here um, is the same that a group of Belgian lawyers came to, except they didn't even know about the serious defects in quality control. So this confirms what you're saying. Thank you very much, Werner. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Very impressive. Thank you. Yes, um, let us, I, we, we have two more experts who will uh, try and explain to us why after everything we've seen tonight, after all this destruction, deliberate destruction, wreaking havoc by the so-called vaccine, why do people allow this to happen to them? But before we uh, talk to these experts, let us ask some questions, uh, because I think there are a few questions that uh, we still need or want to be answered. Uh, Anna and um, Virginie and Dexter. Thank you. I'll start then. Um, I'm Anna Garner from the United States. I'm an attorney there. And I'm going to address this uh, question, I guess, to any of you who can answer it. But <clears throat> we've heard a lot of testimony about the design flaws that have gone into uh, the production and uh, testing, rather, of these vaccines inoculations. We won't dignify them with the word vaccine. So we have we have many design flaws. We had the unblinding after just a couple of months. We had the, uh, let's see, it was called uh, the immunobridging that they did by overlapping the studies with the adults and the, ch and the younger uh, teenagers. We have them misrepresenting the risk rate by using uh, relative risk rates versus absolute risk rates. Is there anything about this that has been done previously in rolling out 
any other types of inoculations that were ostensibly for public health reasons. Is anyone aware that they have had these kinds of design flaws uh, in previous inoculations that have been rolled out for the public? Maybe this is a good question for uh, Susharit or uh, Alexandra. Both. Mm -hmm. The swine flu. I don't have an answer. Mm -hmm. The swine flu. The swine flu that claimed so thousands of victims that was uh, uh, propagated and installed without any reason. And I have to say, you know, Wolfgang Wodak and I stood up, that was, I think, 2009, and we wrote about this and said, this is bad. It's bad. Clear. Of course, you can go back to 2001. Was it for the flu uh, that uh, uh, Anna Gano was saying? No, it was it was for any sort of inoculation. But I'm aware ah, that that's different. Mm -hmm. And so because the then then do you mean like if if there have been a number of of uh, uh, adverse effects, for instance, and that that they would be halted? No, I am talking okay. about. I am talking about the introduction of vaccines that have not been properly tested and that are probably ridiculous. And actually, it started with the anthrax, the anthrax 2001, as I recall, which was uh, along the same lines created by the same people who are behind this right now and led to deaths. Um, Professor Bakhti, may I interrupt you for a second? Now, in those yes. situations, did they have similar types of design flaws? Or, and were they also misrepresenting the findings that they had with the anthrax, with the swine flu, as they are with this particular uh, the COVID-19 inoculation? Without going into detail, Anna, the design flaws were, this, were similar, not the same, of course, but they were there. And um, uh, you have to read about this. I can't explain it to you now in five minutes. That's but quite all right. But if there scare, were previous the scare, and uh, followed by the SARS and the you know bird virus scare, and then topped by this swine flu scare. The swine flu scare has claimed uh, so many existences and and was was representative of what was going on then in 2000 i think it was nine yeah um and is being repeated now but on a scale that is so horrifying so horrifying that i cannot understand that people do not rise and say no this is an absolute no no go. And I said this before, these so-called vaccines, these jabs, are in the experimental stage. You are obliged, anyone in the world, before you let these 
so-called vaccines be jabbed into the bodies of people. The moment you see, this is the Nuremberg Code, by the way, the Nuremberg Code that was, of course, existent in 2009 with the swine flu, but now... So, Dr. Bakshi, what I'm trying to get at is... I'm trying to get... Anna, let me tell you one, one last thing. The, the thing, about, uh, thing about this agenda that differs it from the previous agendas is that the deadly the deadly consequences of vaccination become apparent so quickly and therefore you can stop the vaccination immediately. We could not have done that 12 years ago with the swine flu because those vaccines were conventional and no one could have known what they would have done. But now, but now we know that these vaccines are killing quickly, quickly. And, in, you know, you, you, there's, no, there's no discussion. Nuremberg Code, you've got to stop them. Exactly. And they did stop them with the swine flu after only 50 deaths. And the other thing that I wanted to point out is if they were aware of these design flaws before that caused enough harm, only 50 people died, but that was still enough to stop the the vaccines for the swine flu, they knew, is it reasonable for us to conclude that they knew, these manufacturers knew that these design flaws were flaws that would misrepresent to the public the safety and efficacy of their products. I'm sorry, Anna. Look, did they we, know this? Let's Susan, not did they know this or the did they not know it? It's a it's a simple question, please. Did they know it? Must they have known it or could they have not known it? They could not have not known it. Huh. And therefore <clears throat> it's premeditated. Right. And therefore they have got to be They've got to be removed from our world. And uh, Rainer, you were saying at the very beginning, uh, let's start a law case. And I can say it's overdue. It is overdue. That's why we're doing this, because we cannot expect this kind of a hearing in a system court. That's why we're doing this outside of the system to show and lead the way. Yes, Rainer, but the case is closed. <laughs> the case is closed. It's so clear. Mm. And uh, we will stand witness for the prosecution for you. They will. All of us. Yes. So, 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 so the, the other cases that I'm aware of that uh, they halted uh, the vaccination for it was uh, uh, the, the results were terrible. Uh, is, uh, it's actually, an, uh, as far as I recall, it was a nature paper. Uh, with the RSV uh, uh, retroviral syncytial uh, vaccines uh, in children. And that was in some um, uh, northern countries, whether Denmark or or Sweden. I I don't recall uh, exactly, but I can for sure look it up for you. Uh, And the other cases are the dengue fever um, uh, vaccine. Mm-hmm. 
basically uh, each time the yeah the the the, the result was uh, dreadful and therefore they had to halt the vaccination yes exactly Alexander so if they halted it then then they have to halt it now and now is tomorrow my god yeah what has happened now is nothing to be compared with all the horrible things that happened with, during the dengue. You know, I'm Thai. I know about dengue. And uh, the anthrax. Those were terrible. But what is happening now is a thousand, ten thousand times more terrible. And it is now documented that it is terrible. And Anna Boker has shown pictures that must strike fear in anyone even the lay, to see how the immune system is now being goaded into killing these people. And I don't want us to discuss this anymore. I want us to stand up and get these people to jail. They have to stop. I don't care how and why. You know, we have a, a little boy. And the last point... We are going yeah. to leave this country because the Germans, the Germans, Alexander, sorry, this, the French, the Swiss are not much better. The Austrians are just as bad. Zuzharit, we're working this on this. We are, Zuzharit, yeah. we are working on this. Right now we're trying to find out why this is happening and how this is happening. But we, we know are why it's happening. We are, Zuzharit, we are wrong. in the process of working on this. Please. Bear with I, uh, us. So uh, when, when I was uh, uh, um, at the parliament uh, in the chamber of the deputy in Luxembourg, I did quote uh, the number of deaths uh, of, uh, that, that they had to reach, which were very scarce. I, uh, once again, it is very recorded, very official, because uh, I, it was on the display uh, at the Luxembourg uh, parliament. Uh, and... and the, the, the number was quite low uh, to stop the vaccination. But to come to a conclusion, do we agree that even though similar defective processes have happened in the past, this is totally, completely unheard of, because from your reaction, Zusharit, and from everybody else's reaction, that is what I gather. This is cannot be compared with anything that has ever happened before as far as faulty processes are concerned. Unprecedented. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're muted, you. Sushait. Sushait, you are muted. Listen, guys. The children and the grandchildren of us are being killed. I don't know why we are arguing about anything. It's got to be stopped. It's got to be stopped. And let me tell you, every future mRNA or adenovirus vaccine will carry the same risks, the same risks. Yeah. They must be stopped. They must be prohibited. And never, ever in the future of mankind May these vaccines, whether they are propagated by Bill Gates, I don't know Bill Gates, I don't care about him, 
But he cannot have the power to have the world Let give us, so authority sorry, we have, we understand, use so authority. Sorry, we understand your point. We understand your point. Everyone seems to agree on this, but that is the conclusion that we have to draw from the findings that we are trying to make. We're not quite finished yet, but I agree Why? with you. I, Sushi, because you don't walk into a court of law and say, here's the result, please give me uh, a decision that fits it. You first go through the different steps in order to gather Ryan, all the sorry, evidence I that you need. Sushi, please, it's okay, go, I understand. the evidence is there. Sushrit, this is not how you, Sushrit, maybe doctors do this, lawyers don't. Please no, have patience, have patience, or else we will I'm fail, sorry. because if we, if we move too fast, we will fail. Please understand this. Please right. understand bye, this. Bye, Okay. Okay. Um, next 10,000 children die. I don't want it. No one wants this. I um, can't stand it. Virginie, please. Yes, thank you. Uh, I will make my role <laughs> to record for the court, the grand jury and the judge. I will ask this formally to the experts. Do you think, based on your medical and scientific conclusions, that the following rules coming from the Nuremberg Code were respected by the gene therapist producers and international national agencies. If you would like, you can answer by yes, it's respected or not, or no, it's not. Rule number two, the experiment must be such that it produces results that are advantageous to the good of society, impossible to obtain by other methods or means of study, and not random or superfluous in nature. Do you think that it will it, it has been respected? We know yeah. all of this. The number three, the experiment must be conducted in such a way as to avoid unnecessary physical and mental suffering and injury. Do you think that it was respected? Of course not. We know all of this. Number four, and I will go until number six. Number four, no experiment should be conducted when there is a priori reason to believe that death or disabling injury will occur. Do you think that it was respected? Of course not. Five, the level of risk to be taken should never exceed the humanitarian importance of the problem to be solved by the experiment. Do you think that it was respected? Of course not. And the last one, provision shall be made and means provided to protect, to protect the subject from even the remote possibility of injury, disability or death. Do you of, think it was respected? Of course not, and we know this. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. We know this. We know this, Susharit, but the jury does not know it yet. This is, for some people, the very first time they are hearing this. Dexter, you wanted to ask a question. Yeah. Uh, in conclusion, um, 
Professor Bhakti, when you gave evidence, you did actually uh, gave evidence to the extent that we are now at phase four. So my question that I want to pose to each and every one of you or whoever actually wants to, to answer is that um, when uh, Dina McLeod, when she gave evidence, uh, evidence, and I don't know as to whether I've actually captured it correctly, but you can assist me in this, is that only when one actually conducts phase three of an experiment, medical experiment, can one prove efficacy. Is this correct or have I missed out anything here? Have I missed out anything? Professor, I can't hear you, Professor Bhakti. You are muted. Professor Bhakti. Listen, 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 you guys. What is efficacy? This is the thing that has been going through the whole session, starting with Alexandra and ending with us. How do you define efficacy? If you define efficacy by saying you are not going to have a cold, I say no. Efficacy has always been defined by the number of severe infections and death. And there we have the answer. The answer has been there all the time. Nothing in this whole scam has been ever shown to be efficacious because there is no efficacy if you have an infection fatality My question, and this is where I want to get to, and I want the jury to understand your evidence that you have given, you've stated that we are now at phase four. So my question I'm posing to you or to anyone is that um, when, at what stage can one conclusively actually prove efficacy? Because if we are in a phase four, um, I'm not sure as to whether I've captured the evidence correctly from uh, Dina McLeod uh, that you can only test efficacy at phase three. So if you can clarify or anyone can clarify that for the jury, that would be much appreciated. All right. I'm going to just give you my opinion. Efficacy, to test efficacy by numbers, which mean nothing, which is what is going on now, as we have heard today, becomes secondary to the Nuremberg Codex, which says that in the moment that you have danger looming with what you are trying to apply, you must stop that trial. And now we know, I don't care about efficacy. You cannot change, exchange one life for the other. You cannot say, I'm going to kill you in order to, to maybe protect your grandmother. This is not allowed. And therefore, we don't have to talk about efficacy. The moment any experimental agent is shown to be dangerous, it's got to be stopped, and the cause of this has to be investigated. If they do not do this, they are defying the Nuremberg Code and have to be taken to court. That's Thank you, Professor Bhakti. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dexter. No further questions from me.
what will basically happen is that when it comes to efficacy, we will actually clarify that as well also on, uh, based on all the evidence that has been led up until now and that will continue to be led in our closing arguments. But thank you so much, Professor Bhakti. Yes, thank Most you very welcome. much. Let so us now turn this section. Oh, let us close this part of our hearing and go into why is this happening? How is it possible that so many people can be made to agree to these kinds of medical interventions? We have two experts for this. One is Meredith Miller and the other one is Ariane Bileran both of whom know a lot about psychology. Um, who wants to start? Meredith, I'm sorry to keep you waiting for so long. <laughs> no worries. Can you hear me all right? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. So for the last two years, we have witnessed around the world the same patterns of abuse dynamics that we see in interpersonal relationships. And I'm speaking in terms of psychological abuse, which is mostly invisible, yet very real, insidious, and pervasive in the life of an individual who's been targeted. So over the years of working with clients who are victims and survivors of abuse, only a small percentage of the people that I've worked with experienced physical abuse. Those who experienced physical abuse as well as psychological abuse told me that in the long run, the psychological abuse was far more damaging to them in their entire life. This is not to minimize physical abuse. This is to emphasize how damaging psychological abuse can be. So my understanding of psychological abuse comes from a lifetime of immersion experience in these environments, in the family, in relationships, and studying and working for 16 years in holistic healing and coaching. So in the last six years, I've specialized in a micro niche called narcissistic abuse, which is predominantly psychological abuse. And over working with these people, I've had the opportunity even to work with some people with PhDs, some in psychology, and also with some licensed psychotherapists who told me they didn't see it in their own life. They didn't see the patterns of the abuse and that they also didn't learn how to recognize psychological abuse in their training programs. So today I want to talk about the two most important concepts from my perspective to understand in order to, to understand the individual experience who's been targeted by abuse in terms of what we're dealing with when people fall into the narrative or even when evidence and information and truth is coming out and people continue to grab onto the narrative why would people choose to ingest an experimental substance, but also why would they comply with the narrative in general? And at the very end, I want to bring up a study from Yale University from 2020 um, that's going to bridge what Brian Garish was talking about last weekend. He was talking about the applied behavioral psychology. He brought up a study that was done and he said that it could be used to change the way that people think and feel and behave. And so this Yale study, this Yale University study from 2020, basically gives us the keys to understanding the particular emotional manipulation tactics that they use. Now, they don't call it emotional manipulation. They call it COVID-19 vaccine messaging. And I'm not going to speak about the science because that's not my field. My field is recognizing the red flags of emotional abuse and manipulation. So that's what I'm going to speak on. 
So the first concept to understand about abuse is the cognitive dissonance. This is a survival mechanism that happens. So let's say a person has been cultivated to believe in a certain worldview or perspective or this narrative that was launched in 2020. And then all of a sudden you present to them some evidence or information that contradicts everything that they've believed up until then. The person is going to be unable to reconcile this conflict in their mind and in their brain. And what's going to happen is in a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety on the nervous system, which triggers the amygdala circuit in almost a short circuit or hijacking of the brain. And the person goes into denial. So they won't be able to see that evidence. That's why as the truth more is coming out, people simply can't look at it. They might get angry at the messenger. They might simply turn away or cut somebody out of their life because they're trying to show them some evidence. Some people might be a little more aware of their cognitive dissonance. And when you try to show them the evidence, they might even tell you, I can't look at that because if what you're saying is true, I can't exist in a world like that. So this is the nature of cognitive dissonance, and this is what keeps people in this brain fog. And in the brain fog of the cognitive dissonance, that inner conflict, it's very difficult to think. So people have a very difficult time with cognitive processes, with critical thinking, and what they want to do is see the good in the abuser, in the perpetrator. So the second uh survival mechanism that happens is similar to cognitive dissonance, but more complex. Cognitive dissonance, from my perspective, is sort of like a level one. It's, it's this conflict that happens in the dissonance in the brain. The level two is the Stockholm syndrome. There are more complex dynamics taking place here. So in interpersonal relationships, we typically call this a trauma bond. But with strangers, we call it Stockholm Syndrome. The same mechanisms are taking place in the human brain and neurological system. So what's happening with Stockholm Syndrome is there are four parameters. And I'm going to explain these in a very clear way that people can understand how this relates to what they've experienced and what they've witnessed in other people. And I'm going to give some examples, too, of how we've seen these four parameters show up in real life since 2020. So the very first one is isolation, and this could be either physical and or psychological isolation. The most important key here is that the person is isolated from outside perspectives. They can only have the perpetrator's narrative. So the perpetrator will make sure that they don't have access to outside perspectives because this keeps the person completely, completely subscribed to that, uh, that narrative. So what scientists have discovered is that after a period of prolonged isolation, what happens is that chronically elevated stress levels begin to change a person's neurological system, changing then their ability to form social bonds and even causing irritability and aggression when they're given a chance to participate in social situations. So the state that's caused after the isolation, the prolonged isolation is disconnection. Disconnection in the polyvagal theory create, triggers the sense of unsafe. A person begins to feel unsafe when we're not socially connected. We are mammals. We rely on social connection in order to feel safe at a neurological level. So how, how the isolation played out in the world, there's been the domestic confinement, for example, 
where people were told to stay home with minimal social opportunities. And then how were they isolated by the perpetrator's narrative was through the technology. So in order to understand the individual experience, we also have to look at the environment in which the individual exists. And that is in a world of increasing technological dependence. So an individual is at home and they are constantly connected to their cell phone, to the internet, to the TV. They're listening to mainstream media. They're going on social media and they're constantly bombarded with the repetition of that message. Even on corporations, there's a coordinated corporate messaging repeating those same catchphrases that we're hearing from public officials and through the mainstream media, even going shopping at a corporate grocery store, you're walking around the store at Walmart or Kroger and in the background, constantly assaulting your subconscious are the loudspeakers telling you those same messages about staying six feet apart and wearing your mask and getting vaccinations. And so in order to control a person's exposure, to outside perspectives, what have we seen? We've seen censorship, silencing, propaganda, fact-checking, um, silencing, shaming, and smearing anybody providing that outside perspective. So this is this is essentially how the isolation phase took place. So next, the next phase of the Stockholm syndrome is the perceived. Um, the perceived acts of kindness. And this is part of the abuse cycle. So in an abusive relationship, it's going to go back and forth between idealization and devaluation, some sort of reward and then punishment. And so we call this intermittent reinforcement and it goes back and forth. The perceived act of kindness is the idealization part. And so what that does is that causes a person to relax their guard to begin to trust the perpetrator. And then the intermittent reinforcement and the intermittent reward causes a person to work harder to get that reward, to invest more in that relationship or that life situation, and to develop an almost obsession with compliance based on the hope of getting that reward. So the state that a person goes into due to this perceived act of kindness, and the key word here is perceived because this isn't kindness coming from an abuser, it's a manipulation, but the nervous system and the person perceives it as an act of kindness. So the state that's caused here is almost an addiction to that hope, an addiction to the hope that this will be the time that they get the reward, or this will be the time that change for good happens. So how has this played out? Well, we've gone through phases of lockdowns and then some restoration of some freedom, some loosening of restrictions and then lockdowns again and then back and forth. We've been through the cycle multiple times since 2020. Currently, the trends around the world in many places Again, we're coming into this perceived act of kindness. We're hearing some governments are dropping some regulations. So what's going to happen? People's hopes are getting up again. They're going to be hoping that, oh, this is finally it. We're going back to normal. And that's the thing that every, every victim in an abusive relationship is hoping to get back to the good times. So what we hear in society is people are hoping to get back to normal. Um, other acts of perceived kindness, we've seen so many, the free vaccine. Um, we've also seen in America lotteries in some states get vaccinated and win $50, $100, up to a million dollars in some states. Other states offering french fries, donuts, guns, trucks. You can even get a free lap dance from a stripper in Las Vegas if you get your vaccine at that place. We've also seen mortgage and student loan forbearance, you know, allowing people 
time to put that off. And we've heard promises of safety. It's for your good. It's because we care. These are perceived acts of kindness. And also, and this is a key, little bits and dosing of truth. So this, this perceived act of kindness is dosed periodically, almost like a drug uh, through the relationship or the situation. And so when they disclose little bits of truth and they let little bits of truth leak out, what happens, we get our hopes up again that finally the truth is coming out and we're going to be able to move on and move past this. So then the third parameter of the Stockholm syndrome is a perceived life threat. So now we're getting into more serious state. So the nervous system perceived is again the key word. When the autonomic nervous system perceives a cue of life threat in the environment, the person is automatically locked into an autonomic state of collapse. And this is over a period of time. This doesn't happen the first time. It happens after bombardment and bombardment and shock trauma of fear messaging repeated over in the imagery that they've shown utterly terrifying people. So over a period of time of that terror, what happens is the autonomic nervous system will immediately go into a state of immobilization. So in the state of immobilization, a person feels frozen. They may dissociate. They might check out, not really be present. So they're not really paying attention. They're in sort of an automaton behavior, which makes compliance and control a lot easier. And so also the brain fog that kicks in and even a metabolic shutdown. So as the nervous system goes into this state of autonomic collapse, they may also go into metabolic shutdown. Now, the interesting thing is this state also leads a person to decreased immunity. Now, that's very interesting to notice because we're in a pandemic. And when a person is triggered into this state by the autonomic nervous system, endogenous opioids are also released in the body, which cause the person to stay numb. So that's helpful when a person is going through a lot of pain, but then that becomes maladaptive because that numbness keeps a person locked in this state. So it's very difficult to do anything to take any action because they are neurologically immobilized. So why are people so afraid? On one side, we've seen the messaging of the fear of the virus and also the fear of other people who they've been conditioned to believe are dangerous and diseased. And on the other side, a lot of people have become very afraid of the tyranny that's happening. So the fourth and final parameter of the Stockholm syndrome is a perceived inability to escape. So the person is in this state of collapse for a while, and this goes on and on and on over a period of time. They become exhausted. They have no energy to try anything, to strive for anything. They go into a state what we call learned helplessness, which is also known as, um, as debility, dependency, dread, which causes apathy. And in this state of apathy, debility, and dread, a person starts to become hopeless. They feel utterly powerless over their life. They feel like everything is out of control. And what happens is when they're locked into this state, this, this very low state of consciousness, they don't even have access to the fight or flight system. It takes more energy. They don't even have the energy to fight or flight here. So they certainly don't have access to the higher states of consciousness, like critical thinking, the intellectual brain, or even things like imagination. So if a person cannot imagine the way out, how are they ever going to get out? 
And it's not that a person has to be locked behind prison doors. Most abuse victims walk out their door multiple times a day. They go to work. They go to school to pick up their kids. They do life and they go back home. Right. So it's the perceived inability to escape. And this person is so terrorized and so debilitated and so dependent on the abuser that they begin to believe that their survival is dependent on the perpetrator. They also lose complete capability for creativity and all of the beautiful things that make us human. And so what happens is in this state, it goes on and on and on. And over a period of time, this person becomes spiritually bankrupt. They lose all faith. And when all faith is lost, the only thing left is emptiness. And that word emptiness does not do justice for the feeling and the experience that a person has. It is the worst feeling that a human can have because you feel like you are untethered and lost and floating in the universe with no connection, no support, no promise for the future. And I think that a lot of people have been locked into this state. And so what happens is that people will escape into fantasy. So we've seen a huge increase in pornography. We've seen a huge increase in addictions, in overdoses. And we even see self-harm, huge increases in, in suicide. So why is this even possible? Because a lot of people's entire sense of reality is coming through the technology. It's coming through the media. It's coming through the social media. It's coming through contact with other people who are in this narrative. So this is a very difficult place. When a person is in this place, the mentality is I can't. It's just everything is I can't. So how can they possibly wake up? How can they possibly do anything other than what they're told by, by the, the abuser? And they learn that resistance is painful. So the example is the wife who experiences marital rape. And so she learns over a period of time that it's futile to resist and that for, that resistance only leads to more pain. So just let him get it over with. And I've heard so many people say, I just wanted to get it over with. I just got my shot. You know, they're, they're in this state. So the Stockholm syndrome, really, it explains why people stay in abusive relationships or situations like this narrative, why people return, why people cannot see the evidence that's coming, why people are irrationally loyal to these abusers and perpetrators, and why people even develop empathy for them. So if I do I have a few more minutes to show the Yale yes. study. Yes. Okay, I'm going to share my screen. I'm so sorry. Oh no, it wants me to quit <laughs> Zoom. I'm so sorry. Um, this is on clinicaltrials.gov. If anybody wants to look this up, clinicaltrials.gov, COVID-19 vaccine messaging. NIH, U.S. National Library of Medicine. This was done at Yale University in July of 2020. Um, and what they did is they, they used emotional manipulation messages like personal freedom, economic freedom, self-interest, community interest, economic benefit, guilt, 
embarrassment, anger, trust in science, and not bravery. The interesting thing is that they tell us straight away what their outcome measures are. Their primary outcome measure is intention to get the COVID-19 vaccine. So they want to know what a person's intention is to get it after three months or after six months of it becoming available. The secondary outcome measures, number one, vaccine confidence. So they want to know how much trust people can have or how they can influence people's trust in the vaccine. Number two, persuade others. So they want to know a person's willingness to persuade others to take the vaccine. Number three, fear of those who have not been vaccinated. Number four, social judgment of those who do not vaccinate. And they give you four items to measure uh, the person's, the, the judgment of this person, their trustworthiness. So if you don't get it, you're not trustworthy. Selfishness, if you don't get it, you're selfish likableness, if you don't get it, you're not likable, and competence, if you don't get the vaccine, you're not competent. So they want to get people intended to get the vaccine. They want people's trust in the vaccine. They want people to persuade others to get it. They want people to be afraid of those who didn't get it. And they want people to socially judge those who didn't get the vaccine. And so that seems very clear that they're manipulating people about this vaccine. When we look at the, the messaging that they use, for example, trust in science, the premise here is that getting vaccinated against COVID-19 is the most effective way of protecting one's community. Vaccination is backed by science. If one doesn't get vaccinated, that means one doesn't understand how infections are spread or one who ignores science. Uh, the, the not bravery, uh, for example, the frontline workers like firefighters and doctors are brave. Those who choose not to get vaccinated are not brave. Another one of the, the messaging that they've used, and, and this might already be ringing a bell to the jury who's thinking about the messaging that they've been hearing constantly for the last couple of years, community interest. So this message is about the dangers of COVID-19 to the health of loved ones. The more people who get vaccinated against COVID-19, the lower the risk that one's loved ones will get sick. Society must work together and all get vaccinated. So as I read through these, what I see is red flags. I even see gaslighting, which is the distortion of the perception of reality. For example, they say COVID-19 is wreaking havoc on the economy and people's economic freedoms. But that's actually not correct. It is the government regulations and restrictions and policies that are wreaking havoc on people's personal freedom and economic freedom and the economy. So uh, I would love for any scientists to take a look at this study and, and see what they may want to say. Uh, I just wanted to speak about the red flags of abuse and manipulation. And I think that this study really provides that bridge to what Brian Garish was talking about using the applied behavioral psychology. This is an example in action of how they've done that and how they've manipulated people into taking this and not just taking it, but to do their bidding for them and to convince other people to get it. When was this study conducted? July 2020. Can you uh, send us a link to that study? Yes, I can. Thank you. I'm gonna I'm gonna send it, but you can move on if you. Uh, um, I just I'm trying to pull up my thing. That's all right. That's all right. Um, go ahead, Dexter. Yeah, I just wanna. Uh, uh, Mrs. M Ms. Miller, 
Um, when it comes to the Yale study, and you've actually put quite a lot of emphasis on it, and I'm actually just trying to understand here as to who actually gave the instruction for the study to be conducted. Do so that no, or is I'm it gonna, just an academic study that was conducted? Or I'm going to put the link in the chat. Oh, it's disabled. Um, so I'm going to send y'all the link. I'm not a scientist, so I I help. I'm a holistic coach. I help people here after the abuse. I just recognize the red flags of abuse. I would like to see a scientist take a look at the study. All, all I've read is the front page that they've openly put out to the public. I'm sure that a scientist could take a look at that and dissect that in a very scientific way that could be helpful to answer your question. Thank you. Do you want to continue, Meredith, or are you taking... That's all that I have, unless you have other questions. We do have questions, uh, but does it make sense to first hear um, Ariane? Sure. Okay. Please go ahead, Ariane. Thanks. I, I will read English. My English is un poco awful. I am uh, Ariane Billeron from France. I am a philosopher. Specialized in philosophy of morale and politics. I am clinical psychologist and doctor in psychopathology, specialized in the study of manipulation, deviance of power, perversion, paranoia, harassment, and totalitarianism. So I will speak from those two points of view. Uh, I have taught for several years at the University in France. I have been an auditor and investigator for companies, um, but also an expert for courts in cases of harassment at work. I have published many books on these subjects, some of which have been translated into uh, languages other than French. In the situation we are dealing with, my expertise allows me to say that we are dealing with a totalitarian drift, and I will describe why I think so. This is a totalitarian drift from the point of view of political philosophy, but also from the point of view of psychopathology, which corresponds to a collective delusion, the paranoiac delusion. Paranoia is a contagious psychosis whose masterpiece is harassment and which functions according to the following structure. A visible or invisible imaginary enemy persecutes us. We must go to war against the enemy. And this justifies the use of harassment. And all means are permitted. It is a delusion of persecution that leads to acting out. The intention to harm is nevertheless safeguarded, which is why I have in the past spoken out on the need for criminal convictions of paranoiac profiles, which are in the majority of cases at work in harassment. In the totalitarian system, the content of the delusion may change. For example, who is the designated enemy, but the structures, the troops structure remains the same, the one I just told you. First point, my diagnosis, uh, 
harassment used against populations with terrible consequences on the mental health of individuals. In the political crisis we are dealing with, typical methods of harassment were used on the people who were victims of repeated moral pressure in order intended to create and maintain a state of terror in the individual. The consequences are terrible for people's mental health. The least we can say is that mental health has not been at all at the heart of the concerns. On the contrary, the damage is considerable. Multiple traumas, depressions, suicides, psychological disorganization, addictions, mental confusion, psychiatric decompensations, especially of schizophrenic type. Many specialists are alarming us, especially concerning children. For example, in January 2021, the head of the child psychiatry department at Necker Hospital in Paris, Dr. Pauline Chast spoke of an alarming increase in suicide attempts among children and young adolescents in several Parisian hospitals. Mental health disorders are also often factors and triggers of somatic disorders called psychosomatic, affecting the health of the individual. Right now, the end justified the means and the logic is sacrificial. It becomes acceptable to sacrifice individuals in the name of quantity, in the name of the greatest number, and the individual is deprived of his human rights. Moral considerations no longer enter into the discourse except to be used in terms of blackmail and manipulation. It would be for the good of the group that the individual should be sacrificed itself. As an example, children's schooling has been sacrificed in many countries of the world for the last two years with class closures, greater inequalities, those who have access to the internet and those who don't, brutal class closures, isolation of children leading to depressive ideas. In France, healthcare providers were fired because they refused to undergo experimental injections in a so-called pandemic context where the health system could not logically afford to suspend his, its staff. Any form, any, any form of disagreement or even simple questioning encounters censorship and repression in the face of a dogmatic narrative that no one had the right to refute, despite the many paradoxes it contains. The French president had, has repeatedly called on the French people to sacrifice themselves to make efforts in the war against the virus. virus. More globally, whole countries has been locked down, unable to deal with the economic lockdown, with millions, millions of people falling into misery. With this sacrificial logic, individuals no longer count and can be used as objects of experimentation 
to the point of genocide. There are no longer any moral, legal, or spiritual limits. The method used are sectarian method. First, terror. An extremely dangerous virus is going to kill us. Se um, two, sequestration, lockdown, restrictions of freedom of on freedom of movement and infringement of inalienable fundamental rights, such as freedom of movement, freedom of expression, etc. Three, exclusion and mistreatment. Critical citizens are considered bad, even to the point of calling for murder in some political discourses. For example, in Italy, where personalities from journalism, politics, and medicine called for the segregation in trains between the vaccinated and the non-vaccinated, suggesting a thing around the neck for the non-vaccinated with declarations wishing for the re-establishment of the gas chambers. Some people today have lost everything, jobs, live livelihood, parental rights, etc., simply for being opponent of the policies to have been pursued. For example, the refusal of care, as well as the injection practiced without any discernment of individuals with the regard to their diversity are abusive practice that endanger human life without the states taking responsibility for them. In France, being subject to anaphylactic shock is not a criterion for not being subjecting to injection. Four, conflict of loyalty forcing individuals to make impossible choices, false choices, for example, between the right to work, to work to our means of subsistence and the right to dispose of our own body. It's a false choice. Five, hypnotic suggestions. In particular, something called the hypnotic seal, which induces prohibition of thinking in people through the mass media with the repetition of a deadly accounting discourses and images of panic. Six, censorship and persecutions. Seven, repeated traumatic shocks and overtime sent on the population. For example, orders of closure issued at the last moment. Sometimes even orders within orders paradoxical discourse. For example, in France, the government has been known to say everything and its opposite sometimes, sometimes within weeks of each other without ever justifying what was said before. Eight, generalized anomalies. For example, incentives to professionals traditionally not licensing to perform injections like the nutritionist or the physiotherapist or the psychologist for great profit. Nine, guilt tripping of individual seduction, blackmail, intimidation threats, refusal of care of some category of the population, lack of education for children, disorganization of spatial and temporal 
benchmark for the entire world population, surveillance and trans transgression of people's intimate lives, etc. And this is an asymmetrical context where people have been subjected to the decisions of their leaders and where innocent people have been designated as guilty. For example, children designated as guilty of killing their grandmother. The citizen is treated like a prisoner on parole. The repeated traumatic shocks obtained in this way over time provoked both by political discourses and decisions, but also by the incessant suggestions in the mass media have led individuals in states of traumatic dissociation. It triggers a defense mechanism called denial in psychology, that is the impossibility of representing the violence of a situation that threatened the psychic life. The manipulations of the mass media playing on fear and panic have led to divisions in families, in couples, and in French friendships, slip, slip, splitting society into two camps and causing distrust of all against all, from which it will now be very difficult to emerge in order to establish harmony between citizens. Don't we say divide and conquer? The mass media have operated a permanent hypnotic suggestion, reducing the individual to a mathematical unit, a number or a positive or negative, positive case, negative case. In Hypnosis, there is the hypnotic seal, which is very powerful induction that provokes a radical prohibition on thinking on the such and such a subject, like a drawer that is sealed in the psyche. A sect or cult requires adherence to a religious type of faith. The individual is not asked to analyze, but to believe blindly, persecution and censorship, as well as in intimidation, have fallen upon those who wanted to an analyze and not believe. A sect or a cult always promises the return of a lost paradise. The same thing with the totalitarian system. A sect or a cult proposes fetish objects. Here, the Holy Grail was the injection supposed to free us from evil. Of course, it was a lie. People who were injected twice today lose their rights in many countries if they refuse to pursue in this way. And we can clearly see that it is to lead us further towards a world of global planetary control and surveillance where the individual will be reduced to nothing at best to be used as a force of production, at worst, to be annihilated as useless to the capitalist reign. The totalitarian drift is of a sectarian and prophetic nature. Hannah Arendt said, the scientificity of totalitarian propaganda is characterized by the emphasis it plays almost exclusively on scientific 
scientific prophecy, as opposed to the more traditional reference to the past. The prophecy took place from the beginning with a completely unrealistic and unrealized prediction of the number of days. And I refer to the book I wrote with Vincent Pavant, professor of mathematics, Le Débat Interdit, the Forbidden Debate, which will be published at the beginning of March in France. The totalitarian system places the achievement of the schools in a future that it always distant, a kind of final promise, the return, the return to a lost paradise, the end of the Calvary, the purity of the race, the territory purified of disease, the return to the world before, etc. It's a question of uni uniting the mass against a common enemy, here the virus, supposedly incarnating the opposition to the achievement on, of this goal. The enemy both external and internal, will be susceptible to change. Ideological scientism and its predictive technique never cease to move. Their chameleon dimension keeps them in power. The discourse is no longer a reflection of the experience. It is the experience that must conform to the discourse. We started with predictive models which we wanted to, to impose on reality. Let's think of Ferguson predictions in this case. In science, model must always be submitted to reality and not the contrary. French mathematics professor Vincent Pavant puts in this way in the book Le Débat Interdit, so the first postulate was established, Ferguson's models and the calculation that were based on them corresponded to reality. It is precisely from this moment that the collective delusion begins. The delusion of reality was established and from then on the postulate of the predominance of arbitrary figures resulting from modeling speculation was imposed instead of the statistical enumeration of the operational science, those that start from the facts and measures them. There has been a major scientific scene here with tragic consequences for humanity. It's necessary to understand why totalitarianism works on the populations. It works on the populations because in totalitarianism there is a promise made. This is a promise that will not be kept, of course. The promise to the people is to take full responsibility of the suffering of their existence and they return to a lost paradise. This is what was set up at the beginning in Western countries. We, we take care of you completely. Stay at home. We pay you, don't think anymore, we think for you. Get vaccinated and everything will go back to the way it was. Don't think, we think for you, etc. From the point of view of psychology, the profiles that instigate harassment are perverse and or paranoia profiles, so-called narcissistic 
profiles. But in the case of perversion, the criminal responsibility is engaged because there is no delusion constriction. While in the case of paranoia, the question is more debatable since it is a delusion of persecution. Nevertheless, the paranoiac individual is fully aware of harming. He even justifies it. He clearly intends to harm. And this intention is justified by a pseudo-ideal, the common good, health for, her, for, for all, etc. As we have already seen in former totalitarian regimes. The, the paranoiac does not necessarily believe in the content of his delusion. It's rather a way of being of the world, a way of persecuting where the other is seen as an enemy. And we can make the hypothesis that the instigators of this tragic development for the peoples have this relation to the world, a relation to the world made of anguish, of persecution, of narcissistic rigidity, in which the peoples are seen as enemies, a world population considered as too big and to be eliminated in some eugenistic perspectives. Clearly, the totalitarian system functions according to a pathologi pathological structure, which is one of paranoia. Mass psychosis is created by paranoiac profiles, Although it needs the alliance of different pathological profiles, notably the perverts, the perverts, cynicism, instrumentalization, they are the ones who don't believe in the discourse of persecution, but generally they get considerably richer from the crisis that they have contributed to create, for example, for their only profits and the psychopath, mercenaries of the regime to continue to exist. The paranoiac delusion persecutes in the name of what is prophesis. And what is prophesis, it simply makes it happen. There will be a lot of deaths, it says. And in fact, by repeatedly prohibiting treatments that cure patients and making populations more precarious, these days are coming. Moreover, the ideological narrative justifies the persecutions by self-defense. With paranoia, it's allowed to kill because it was in self-defense. In paranoiac delusion, there are ideas of delusion hypochondria, and this is what leads to mass Munchausen syndrome, which is the inappropriate over-medicalization of a common viral disease, which would deserve proper and early care, denying the temperance, warnings, and experience of experts, and creating more problems and suffering that, than it solves. In the delusion hypochondria of paranoia, the disease is everywhere, experiences and as dangerous, deadly, the enemy of the living. The sick is opposed to the healthy, and the impure to the pure. Orders are given to eliminate the part of the social body designated as impure. 
the supposed impurity is to be hunted down by terror and radical methods. The end justifies the means. This is the reason why Hannah Arendt said, terror is constitutive of the totalitarian political body, just as legality is for the Republican political body. The whole picture is a totalitarian drift. For political philosophy, particularly according to the work of Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben, it is a matter of normalizing a state of exception in which human rights are suspended. The past prevents freedom of movement. It is a safe bet that the nature of these paths aimed at controlling the movements of citizens which be, will be reinventing in the name of others' emergency, ecology, health, terrorism, manufactured in the name of the state of exception. Let us recall the political criteria of totalitarianism, which cannot be reduced to a dictatorship, a despotism, or tyranny. Monopoly of the mass media and the police force, central management of the economy, persecution of opponents and of any criticism, system of surveillance of individuals, encouragement of denunciations, concentrationary logic orchestrated on terror, clean slate policy, moving ideology built on the divisions between good citizens and bad citizens on the enemy, visible or invisible, and purity. The totalitarian system is sustained by an ideology. That means a delusion belief which has no longer any link with logical truth or with the reality of experience and which constantly needs to renew itself in its content in order to maintain an illegitimate power. The key instrument for the establishment of totalitarian power is first of all, the harassment of minds, which must become permeable to the ideology. The media propaganda must obtain the division of the collective, of the traditional clans, families, social classes, political clans, according to the paranoia cleavage, between the good and the bad. Line of designation can evolve according to the chameleon ideology. Terror quickly intervenes through the designation of the enemy. Here at the beginning, the enemy is an awful virus that intends to disseminate the human species and against which we are, are at war. Then the enemies become, become the disobedient who don't want to respect these so-called sanitary measures imposed by the political field. Propaganda often masked behind subtle manipulations. It's for your own good, takes pleasure in creating collective traumatic shocks. For example, accounting of death repeated daily which will then allow it to extend its control over the certain and terrorized population, which under the effect of the paradoxical injunctions 
and the wear and tear will call the torturing power as a savior anywhere for its greatest misfortune that this so-called savior is at the same time the persecutor. Totalitarianism is international in its organization, universal in its ideological aim, and planetary in its political aspirations. It pursues the experiment of total domination, said Anna Hunt. In front of this generalized violence and induced despair, the psychists are awakened. May many people fall into suicidal acts, perversions, or madness. Individuals who behave in a respectful way of the fundamental prohibitions can, in favor of a totalitarian ideology, regress, and in particular on a perverse mode. The deployment of the totalitarian system therefore leads to the occurrence of numerous abuses of power and sadistic acts committed by little chiefs who revel with themselves. And one wonders then how this good family man, usually so pleasant and known for so long, became capable of, the many, of so many atrocities. In conclusion, Goebbels noted in his diary, in the Warsaw ghetto, there was a certain rise in typhus. But measures were taken not let them out of the ghetto. After all, Jews have always been carriers of contagious disease. They must either be herded into a ghetto and left to their one, left on their one, on their own, or they must be eliminated. Otherwise, they will always contaminate the healthy population of civilized states. It's important to mention that we have already had to deal with the sanitary ideology of an epidemiological type in the not so distant past with the typhus epidemic which the Nazi claimed to be fighting and eradicating. It is indeed the deployment of this hunt for the typhus epidemic that designates in a category of the population as be, being carriers of it and treat them as epidemic propagating parasites. The typhus epidemic was spreading because all the conditions were there for it. Distribution of bedbug infested blankets crowding in unsanitary ghettos, etc. In an article entitled, The Germs of a Fascist International While Everyone is Claiming Victory and Never Again, Hannah Arendt on the still smothering ashes of the war immediately announces the ten shows of tomorrow in the gears of an anti international which would infiltrate the post-war institutions in the manner of an occult sect within the after-war institutions and may come back even through the creation of Europe. That is to say that at the very moment when European populations thought they had gotten rid 
of the awful days, the philosopher warns it could happen again and much worse. In the totalitarian system, the living is the enemy. The individual is reduced at best to a number. The language is corrupted so that individuals can no longer think about what happens to them. For example, the asymptomatic sick people, this expression means nothing. Or the addition of new of a new vocabulary in the media, no less than uh, 16 new words or expressions. The goal is no longer alienation, but the annihilation of the human subject. And for that, it's necessary to break all spontaneity. Totalitarianism is by essence genocidal. It does not need the human anymore, or rather it pretends to create him again from scratch. The new man to whom it's necessary to suppress the freedom to make reign the tyrannical and unhealthy ideal of purity. Transhumanism, which is a modern form of the Nazi superman, is the pure and simple negation of human rights. The term transhumanism was invented in the 1940 by Aldous Huxley's brother to replace, to replace the term eugenics. The apology of the powerful body, of the will of the power, of the transhumanized superman supposes the elimination of the supposedly useless of the sick and suffering bodies. Totalitarian regimes always use science, or we should rather say scientism, to establish a pseudo-legitimacy for their existence and demand, demand a kind of religious fervor toward this scientism. The current crisis is the reign of the god of mathematics. Hannah Hunt said that propaganda is no longer an objective problem about which people can have an opinion, but has become in their lives an, ele an element as real and intangible as the rules of arithmetic. However, I must remind you that it is impossible to apply mathematical, statistical, biological concepts to the human political, moral, and spiritual experience. If we accept that mathematics, that statistics run our human existence, we are reduced to numbers, to positive, to negative, positive case, negative case. And we can therefore be eliminated without any remorse. The discipline that thinks about human political, moral and spiritual experience is philosophy, especially moral and political philosophy and metaphysics. The human being is sacred. Human life is sacred. In other words, it's impossible to apply scientific concepts coming from the so-called hard science, which it should be remembered are science of dead matter, to the human, political, moral, and spiritual experience. The scientific approach carried by its limits becomes inhuman and is then used to try to justify approaches that are in reality neither scientific nor human. 
Let us quote the, the writer Kussler, who testifies to the methods of recruitment of the totalitarian experience that he himself lived in this book, Darkness at Moon. There are only two conceptions of human morality, and there are opposite poles. One is Christian and humanitarian, declaring the individual such and asserting that the rules of arithmetic should not apply to human units, which, is, which in our equation represent either zero or infinity. The other conception starts from the fundamental principle that a collective end justifies all means and not only allows but requires that the individual be in any case, subordinating and sacrifice to the community, which can dispose of him either as a guinea pig to be used in an experiment or as a lamb to be offered sacrifice. I thank you very much. Thank you, Ariane. Dexter. Do we have questions? I think we do. Anna. I, I have a question or I have a couple of questions if we if you allow me. Um, th this uh, both of you seem to agree that this is not just happening, but this is something that other people have invented and this is now a concerted, a worldwide concerted effort going on. Um, is that correct? How, what kind of people do this? I know I've asked this question before, but how can anyone go beyond what we would consider empathy, for example, and humanity? and believe in sacrificing individuals for the greater good. What kind of people are we dealing with? Are we dealing with psychopaths who are still capable of understanding what they're doing and controlling what they're doing? I think that a psychopath understands very well the difference between right and wrong, mm -hmm. but they have a spiritual problem of the conscience. The conscience is what makes us human. And they can tell the difference between right and wrong. They're not crazy at all, but their conscience doesn't feel the weight of the guilt that the rest of us would feel, those of us who are capable of feeling empathy. Uh, over the years, sometimes psychopaths have commented on my videos and they have openly said that they feel superior to other people because they're not bothered uh -huh. by that empathy and, and sense of guilt. So there is a, a certain megalomania uh, involved in this. They, they think they're much better than anyone else, and that's why they can do whatever they want with individuals. The grandiosity and the entitlement that they should get away with it. Yeah. That is what criminals who commit uh, very uh, gruesome deeds usually uh, have in common, don't they? 
You know, the interesting thing, though, is that when the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatry, describes the narcissistic personality disorder and the antisocial personality disorder as the overt types, uh -huh. the obvious types, the criminals who get caught and go to jail. They don't describe in the scientific literature the covert types who are very sophisticated and, in my opinion, far more dangerous because of how hidden they are and how far they can go in society because of that. Does that mean that the um, those who are pulling the strings are no more dangerous than those who are helping them, the ones who, whose strings are being pulled? So those would be the enablers. Mm. And the thing about an abusive system, so you can even look at a family unit or society in general, but any abusive system is formed of abusers and enablers. And it's actually the enablers that keep that system functioning. Mm. The abusers need the enablers to do that bidding for them. I will speak in French. And... <laughs> uh, um, Tout le monde ne recherche pas le pouvoir. I, no, I can't. Do, they, they, yeah, yeah. I cannot. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. I'm sorry. I was muted, so I couldn't translate. So it seems that both of you, uh, uh, Ariane, il semble que toi et Meredith, vous êtes d'accord. Ce que um, Rainer veut savoir. C'est euh, qui, qui sont ces gens Est-ce que ce sont des psychopathes euh, Voilà, euh, c'est à peu près les mêmes questions qu'il a posées la dernière fois. Qui sont ces gens-là Et euh, voilà. Meredith, si tu as quelque chose à rajouter que j'aurais oublié, mais c'est en gros c'est ça. Euh, tout, tout le monde ne recherche pas le pouvoir. Euh, les profils qui recherchent le pouvoir sont Euh, les, essentiellement, les paranoïaques et les pervers. Euh, ça, il faut que tu... Not everybody is looking for, par for power, but essentially paranoïaques et pervert. Mm -hmm. euh, ce sont des troubles narcissiques. On peut mettre la psychopathie, psychopathie, perversion, paranoïa. Ce sont des troubles narcissiques graves. It is a narcissistic trouble, a serious one. Uh, and, um... Ils n'ont pas, dans leur construction psychologique, développé l'altérité. And they have not developed in their psychic development um, togetherness. Alterity. Alterity or togetherness. Mm -hmm. How do we get out of this? Is it... Oh, oh, oh. Uh, is, is, uh, in my view, um, it is important for the people to understand what's going on, to see the whole picture. Is there any other way? Because to me, that is the only way to make people see what is really going on. And only if they can see and understand what is going on, can they stand up and fight this. For me, what's important is that people see the grand tableau. Anna Arendt disait que le totalitarisme s'arrête quand les masses cessent de croire. 
So Anna Arendt said that uh, totalitarianism stopped when the masses stopped to believe blindly, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's when enough people start to see the truth. Mm-hmm. Y a pas de participation de la société civile, il n'y a pas de totalitarisme. If the uh, if the society, the people in the society. Uh, don't participate, there is no totalitarianism. Yes, but, that but, is... Yeah, but for this, they also have to know, and that's maybe why we see this intense um, uh, efforts of, like, censorship right now, because it's becoming a little bit dangerous, like, you know, the amount of people speaking out now or meeting on the streets, and uh, that's what you think also. Yes. I think also that is more and more censorship and the media that made so much work that it's really difficult for for us to uh, uh, manage to uh, give the, the the truth. Yeah. So it's. I think it's a main problem we have now. Yeah. Donc c'est c'est vraiment la censure qui est le principal problème actuellement. Et les médias, les médias grand public, ils font un travail de sap énorme. And the uh, and the mainstream media is the is the main issue and the censorship. Et I think il y a une barrière psychologique pour les gens, c'est de penser que leurs gouvernants leur veulent du mal. Well, the, there's a blockages because they they have a really a difficult time to conceive that uh, some other people wants to harm them. I think one of the biggest challenges is the cognitive dissonance because even as even if the censorship didn't exist to control the information to control the reality. Even if people had access to that information, it's so difficult for them to even face the truth in that state. And something really important that Ariane mentioned earlier was the, the, the deprivation of human rights and how human rights are suspended. And the trick that all abusers do and what keeps people in the abuse is that they want to destroy your self-worth. They have to flatten your self-worth. They have to make you believe that you are not worthy of your basic human rights. And what is at assault here, it's not just the vaccine, and it is, is compliance. They want to violate our consent. And that is going to be the theme that's going to continue in the next pandemic and the next crisis that they manufacture or take advantage of all the way to the Great Reset. So the self-worth is so important for the individual to rebuild. Otherwise, they're not going to believe that they're worthy of those basic human rights. Thank you so much. I'm sorry, Dexter. No, no, it's, uh, thank you, Raina. You've mentioned something very, very important, and that is, uh, Ms. Miller, you were mentioning consent. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we look at a Nuremberg Code, we look at a Helsinki Declaration, we look at natural law, whatever, it all comes down to consent. So for me, it seems to me that um, they are actually, this is definitely a psychological whole, but then it's a psychological whole with the main emphasis to actually get voluntary consent from the populace. And what it will then ultimately come to, and I can already foresee that this can be a possible defense, 
um, when we actually pursue this further. And that is to say, no, we just gave them the information. And with that information, they've actually given consent. But from a psychological point of view, when it comes now to uh, debt consent, um, debt was definitely uh, granted on the basis of the psychological warfare that was conducted on the populace. Will you not agree? That's correct. And that's what every abuser does in a relationship. They tell you without telling you what they're doing. So then they can say, well, I told you and you knew all along because they don't accept any accountability for their actions. The more sophisticated, the more covert the abuser is, the more they need your voluntary consent. But as I think it was Virginie that mentioned earlier today, it's not real consent. Because when, when people are not provided with the true information, they don't realize deception is taking place. They're not giving real consent. That was a trick. That was a ruse to get them to consent to something that was a deception all along. So obviously, um, the mass media is playing a massive role when it comes to getting people to a point to consent them, to put them in that mind space. Yeah, so that's the whole thing is the abuser's equation is problem, reaction, solution. And so this is a bit what Brian Garrison was talking about last weekend with the applied behavioral psychology, where they provoke, first first there's a problem. So they either manufacture a problem or crisis, or they take advantage of one that's already happening. And then they provoke your emotion, whether it's fear, for example. And then by provoking that emotion, they can almost predict what your behavioral response is going to be. So they can drive you to a predetermined solution. And the most sophisticated abusers will make you beg for that solution and think that it was your idea all along. That is just basically brings me to um, follow the signs. Because when you listen to all of the stalking hits, they will, and even the medical doctors like Dr. Fauci, one of the defendants, they will always repetitively actually mention follow the signs. And that's then to put the populace in a specific mindset to say, you can trust me. I know what I am doing and I will do no harm to you. But obviously that's not the case. And that was one, if, if we take a look at that Yale study, that was one of the emotion, emotional manipulation tactics they used is trust in science. And so when you hear Fauci say, I am science, and if you don't believe me, you don't believe in science, that it, it, th- those catchphrases, it's like a whole download of information that triggers an emotional reaction and then a behavioral response. Thank you. I had one question, just a very brief one. And Meredith, you mentioned something, an excellent presentation by both of you, by the way. It was very nice how it dovetailed together and and really enhanced one another. Uh, But Meredith, you mentioned something about uh, in the Stockholm Syndrome, the, you know, perceived life threat. And then you gave an example of uh, people who are either fearing the virus or other people. And at the opposite end of that spectrum were people who were fearing tyranny. And that made me think that maybe none of us really, as much as we think we know what might be going on, none of us has escaped some of this psychological terrorism that has been going on across the globe. Is is that a fair statement? For sure. I, I will admit I've also been in this state 
periodically throughout the time that's gone on. And I think that we all have experienced moments of that. Perhaps some people spend more time in that state than others. And some of us are able to get back up into those higher states of consciousness because of working on healing our own traumas in our life. But otherwise, it's very difficult to get out of that state. And, and really, no one is completely immune to that. But the self-worth is really the greatest immunity to abuse and manipulation because it really makes you question what people are trying to get you to do and what is their intention. I'm, that's, that's a great key. That, oh, I'm sorry. You probably need to translate. But that's a great key, the self-worth. And that's where we need to maybe empower people. Uh, and that's one of the things I think we're doing by empowering them with knowledge and the self-worth that they are worthy humans to have human rights. Uh, I think a big part of the self-worth, how can people find self-worth is setting boundaries. So then the knowledge is not going to change their self-worth, knowing that they're human and that they have inalienable rights, that God-given rights from birthright to human rights. This is this means nothing to a person who's caught in that state. So the only way to start rebuilding self-worth is to evaluate what most matters to you, take inventory of your values, and then set boundaries to protect those. And every time you set a boundary, like no, and no is a complete sentence, and only manipulators keep pushing and pushing once you said no, right? So when a person sets that boundary, they start rebuilding their self-worth naturally. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but um, Ariane would like to talk, and for some reason she has been muted, so um, if there is something that can be done so she can also answer. Oh, okay, here you are, uh, Ariane. Um, um, they were talking, the, I think it was Rainer or Dexter, uh, I think it was Dexter that talked about um, 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 the emphasis on consent. That's what you said, Dexter? Uh, that's correct, yeah, from a psychological point of view. And I think for for you, if you can bring it from a totalitarian point of view, that will be awesome. That will be yes. great. Thank you. Can you talk about, uh, uh, Ariane, can you talk, uh, est-ce que tu peux parler uh, du consentement, du point de vue psychologique avec le totalitarisme? Um, en fait, le, le, le harceleur recherche la soumission de sa victime. The harasser look for submission of his victim. Et pour cela, euh, elle ne peut pas se mettre en opposition. C'est contre-productif pour lui. So he cannot be in opposition. It's counterproductive for him. Il doit amener à faire en sorte que la victime euh, fasse quelque chose qu'elle n'aurait pas fait uh, si elle n'avait pas été harcelée. He must push the victim to do something that we will not uh, have done if he wasn't harassed. C'est pour ça qu'il y a manipulation. Ordinary, you know, That's why there is manipulation. Le syndrome de Stockholm, c'est un moment... Uh, où la victime ne peut pas échapper à son harceleur. The Stockholm syndrome is a time that the, the victim cannot escape to the harasser. Elle est prise au piège. Uh, the victim is trapped. Et donc, il y a un mécanisme de survie. Therefore, se... there is a mechanism of, of survival. 
coup, la victime va anticiper ce que veut son bourreau. So therefore, the victim is going to anticipate uh, what wants his perpetrator. Pour essayer que what the perpetrator wants. Pour essayer de survivre. To, uh, to try to survive. Et donc, elle va se mettre dans le cerveau de son bourreau. So it's like it's gonna it, 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 the victim is gonna be in the brain in the yes in the brain. Et c'est à ce moment-là qu'elle va en même temps rencontrer la souffrance de son bourreau. And at the same time, when it, 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 uh, the, the victim is going to meet uh, the, the suffering of uh, his perpetrator, encounter the, 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 the suffering of his et, perpetrator. Et ensuite, comme. And then, Le, pour nous, so, le mécanisme sorry. can I ask a question, Ariane? Is it for this reason that sometimes we, we see people surpassing what they what is expected? For example, masking the car, masking everywhere, even if it's not mandatory. It's for this reason? <laughs> que l'on voit parfois des gens qui vont au-delà de ce qu'on leur demande, à savoir porter le masque dans la voiture, partout, même quand ils sont seuls. C'est pour cette raison, ils vont au-delà de ce que demande le bourreau, en fait. C'est un mécanisme de survie. Si on plaît, si on, si on plaît au bourreau, peut-être il va nous épargner. It's, it's a mechanism of survival if we Please, uh, uh, the perpetrator, maybe uh, we're going to be safe. We're going to be, yeah, we're going to be safe. Et donc après, il y a un mécanisme. Nous effaçons toujours les éléments, des, les événements désagréables que nous avons vécu. Tout le monde. Tout le monde and, another, and then there is another mechanism. We always erase, forget uh, what wasn't pleasant. Et donc, la victime ne garde plus que l'empathie pour son bourreau. And therefore, the victim keeps only the empathy for her perpetrator. Et c'est d'autant plus facile que le bourreau manie des discours paradoxaux. And it's uh, much easier, it's uh, much more easier because um, the perpetrator uses par par paradoxical C'est pour ton bien. It's for your own good. Euh, je t'aime. I love you. <laughs> so what we have here, um, if we talk about a solution, um, we have to not just understand rationally what is going on, and that's probably what we have to do to show the whole picture so that people see what's going on. But it's not enough to, to see this rationally. We also need to overcome what one of you called, I think it was you, Meredith, spiritual bankruptcy. Um, we have to understand that there's something out there that's worthwhile fighting for. 
either a loved one or spirituality or religion, whatever. But it takes not just rational understanding of, of what's going on, but it's also important to overcome this spiritual bankruptcy. That's a great term. Yeah, and like you said... I'm sorry. Uh, so, uh, what we just said, uh, uh, it's not enough we... Huh? Brenner, you mentioned um, how sometimes people thought of their children or their grandchildren or their creator or something beyond themselves. Exactly. And that, that is often a very helpful motivation because what gets the person off the floor? You know, humanity is on the floor right now for the most part. And that is the victim in an abusive relationship. Nobody can lift that person up. You can pick them up and they're going to fall right back down. They have to find it within themselves. But like you said, that spark for them, what reignites their soul and their spirit after this kind of abuse is something beyond themselves that motivates them to get up because they don't believe they're worth it. But is there something else that's worth it? That's very well put. That's easy to understand now. Thank you. Je pense que ce qui est compliqué, c'est que quand on a des victimes de harcèlement, on doit couper le lien au harceleur, et ça n'est pas possible. So what is complicated here, it's usually in a relationship with a harasser and, and a victim, usually the solution is to cut the bond with the harasser, but here it's not possible. Mais les gens peuvent le faire quand même un petit peu, déjà en coupant les médias. But people can do it a little bit first by um, uh, turn it off uh, the media, the TV. Donc, ce qui est très important, c'est de proposer, comme nous le faisons, d'autres discours en nommant, comme l'a dit euh, ma collègue, la relation d'abus, la transgression. If I understand, okay. Uh, so what we need to do, it's name, what you said, and it's name things. And uh, what else? Qu'est-ce que tu as dit d'autre? De nommer, de pro proposer d'autres discours qui mm -hmm. nomment la relation uh, de, de transgression. Mm -hmm. So what we need, it, it, we need to hear other discourses that name things and offer other, uh, other ways. Virginie. I have a question on this point. It's about uh, the philanthropic Bill Gates. We heard at the beginning of the session, and you say, Dr. Biron, that uh, um, paranoia profile is aware that he's arming, and um, he, he has the intention, intention of arming because there's no delusion construction. When Bill Gates says that he's sad because he, he is not successful in vaccinating all the, all the world, uh, what do you think? He knows that um, 
is arming people by financing everything, for example? Um, um, C'est compliqué, alors, parce que um, j'aimerais beaucoup expertiser Bill Gates, <rire> mais, <rire> mais euh, euh, le récit, est-ce qu'il croit au récit qu'il a proposé euh, si nous sommes dans ce genre de pathologie, il n'y a pas d'inscription de vrai et de faux. C'est-à-dire que nous sommes bien en deçà dans la construction psychologique, de la capacité de distinguer le vrai et le faux. Donc d'avoir un discours et une compréhension, une capacité, même si ça a l'air rationnel. Euh, ça va au-delà du bien et du mal ce que tu as dit Ariane non j'ai dit que dans la construction, si nous avons affaire à une, à, par exemple, à une construction de type paranoïaque, il n'y a pas accès au vrai et au faux, à la capacité de discerner le vrai et le faux, c'est-à-dire oh. qu'en fait. Ok, ok, So, if we, uh, if we're talking about paranoïa prof profile, which is the case here, uh, they don't have access, we don't have access to the notion of right and wrong. Et pas plus que bien et mal, oui. C'est-à-dire yes, que l'imaginaire est confondu avec la réalité. Tout uh, est confondu. The uh, imagination is confused with a reality. Imagine... La personne dit quelque chose un jour et le lendemain autre chose, l'inverse. The person think one thing one day and it, it will do the opposite next day. Mais le rapport au monde reste un rapport de harcèlement et de persécution, avec une intention de harceler. But the connection with the world is um, still a, a connection of persecution. Et donc, on a euh, l'éternelle question entre la philosophie et le droit. Pour nous, euh, l'éternelle question entre la psychologie et le droit, pour nous, euh, les psys, on peut tout expliquer. Mais le droit doit poser des limites. So we still have this dilemma between philosophy and right. No, psychology and, and right. Psychology and right. And, um, and en psychologie, we, uh, on peut tout expliquer. In, in psychology, we can explain everything. Mais and, il faut poser des limites. Et and, and we need to set limits. Et tous les profils harceleurs sont soit pervers, soit paranoïaques. And all the perverse, harassing uh, profiles are pervert or paranoïaque. C'est-à-dire avec une difficulté, une impossibilité de respecter l'autre. Uh, an capacity to respect others, the others. Une incapacité à contrôler ses pulsions. An incapacity to control the Uh, urges, the pulsion, urges. Une incapacité à 
réellement dis, euh, être capable de, de, de discerner le vrai du faux. Uh, an capacity to uh, clearly um, define the, um, the, the, the wrong and the right. The, the, you know. Et une incapacité à distinguer le bien et le mal. The good and the bad. Evil or bad. Or good. Mm -hmm. I, um, I like to take solace or even courage in the recognition that it doesn't take uh, 80% or 70% or even 50% um, of the people to turn this thing around. Rather, uh, I tend to believe that only a few good men and women under these circumstances are capable of turning this thing around. You don't need the masses. The reason why I'm saying this is because the masses who seem to be under the influence of mass formation are not capable of any real activities. They, they can only react to what they're being told. We, on the other hand, are the ones, we who are in this group right now, and, though, and probably most of the people who are watching this, most of our jury, we have already asked questions. We have already uh, come to the conclusion that there's something wrong here. That's why I think that it is not important to get the masses behind us, but only a few good men and women, maybe 5%, maybe 10%. Is that a correct assumption? The critical mass, I mm -hmm. think is what you're saying. What is that critical mass? And I think there's going to be some people that will never wake up. I think some people will take this to their grave. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's actually okay, that we don't have to try to convert everyone or wake everybody up. In fact, that's even disrespectful to try to confront somebody who doesn't want to listen to what we're saying, but I do think you're right that at a, at a certain point, I don't know what the number is, that critical mass will create some kind of shift mm -hmm. and, and also invite some kind of, you know, some kind of intervention from beyond perhaps that will assist us in this process. Thank you. Um, en psychologie sociale, on a eu quand même beaucoup d'expérience de soumission à l'autorité avec Milgram, avec la prison de Stanford, euh, au début, on est plutôt aux alentours de 1%. 1%. Mm -hmm. What you said, uh, in social psychology, uh, it's rather around 1%. Avec l'expérience de Milgram ou, ou la prison de Stanford, par exemple, sur la soumission à l'autorité. So uh, tu dis que 1%, c'est suffisant pour faire basculer les choses Non, je dis ah. que c'est 1% qui est capable de résister mm. oh, dans oh. les expériences de psychologie. Avec les expériences connues hein, de Milgram et de la prison de Stanford, par exemple. Based on the Milgram experience. Mm. Yeah, it has to be much more than that because we, the um, yeah. the party, the basis has already, um, you know, they made up almost uh, gained almost eight hundred thousand votes, 
and these are clearly like anti-measures people, and then there's much, much more anti-measures people who have never heard of the, the, the this party, for instance, or like just didn't vote for them. So I think in Germany, at least, the situation is, is has reached much more than those 1%. Singer, le début de l'expérience et la suite. Les 1%, c'était le début de l'expérience de la soumission à l'autorité. En mars 2020, combien étions-nous But resistance is also infectious. Also, so. Yeah. More than the virus. Correct. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, I don't want to cut anyone off. Anna or Dexter? I was thinking I that... No more questions. Uh, yeah, I was thinking that that was encouraging. So why not end on that note for today? Yes. No further questions. Well, thank you very much for uh, all of you have done for us tonight. This was real encouragement, ultimately. Um, thank you for staying with us for so long. Thank you, Virginie. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Ariane. Thank you, Vanna. Thank you, Judge Rui de Castro. And thank you, Dexter. And thank you, everyone, for staying with us, for listening, and hopefully standing up. Thank you very thank much. You, thank, thank you, Rainer. Thank you. Thank you, Rainer. Thank you, Rainer. Thank you. Bye. We'll see you all tomorrow, Ben. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.